Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, January 17, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. A brief update on NIL. You ready? Yes. I mean, we got some college football fans out there, and they're interested in where we're headed. Where Football-headed bozos, thank football you very headed much. Football-headed bozos, thank you very much, bad boy of sports radio. There were some edits made. I mean, I was wrong when I said yesterday that a bill would be read across the desk in the House. There's a bill ready to be read across the desk, but some of the legal um, language didn't suit members of the General Assembly's legal team, so to speak. They had to clean up some of the language. Um, and it's, it's not a markup. I mean, a markup is when you change some of the essential language in the bill. This would have been edits, and this would have been to make sure it's written the way it needs to be written if someone were to have a challenge in, in law if it goes to this committee instead of that committee, I mean, it's, it's called editing. We know what editing means. So, so the bill was held for a day, maybe two days uh, to get some editing done, some language cleaned up to make sure that the process begins um, as it should. It's going to be a big deal. I mean, if you're a, um, if you're a Gamecock or Tiger, which a lot of us are, it's going to be a big deal to be, become more competitive uh, in the NIL space. And, um, I mean, I'll make a prediction. I said yesterday, I think it's going to be either, or it's going to be either using booster club money or television revenue to subsidize or supplement the collective, the collective stays in place. Because once again, the last thing you want is the student athlete becoming an employee of the university. Cause you've got collective bargaining. You've got overtime pay. You've got time off. You've got. I mean, it, it gets real, real, real complicated. Um, organizing, I mean, it, it just gets real complicated if indeed that were to ever um, happen. So I'm, I'm suggesting, strongly suggesting that the General Assembly not abolish or banish the collective model. That needs to stay in place because that gives you the layer of insulation uh, to make these football players, basketball players, baseball players, not employees, but rather independent contractors in the weirdest way imaginable. I'll update best I can. Um, I got a text into a friendly late last night. Uh, really late. I mean, it's late for me, 730. Um, <laughs> that's late for yeah. me. Eight o'clock's late for me. So at about 755 late, I, I sent a text to a buddy of mine that works in the Senate. And he said, um, he said, I'll, I'll get back with you tomorrow. I know you're saving the world from six to 10. But after you save the world, I'll get back to um, and deal with the mere mortals. Then, uh, then we'll get back in the groove of trying to figure out exactly where we are in the NIL world, the General Assembly, Gamecocks, Tigers, and, uh, and Shauna Clears. 843-661-0937. Don't want to belabor that point, but but let, let's get to the, to the politics. We wake up the morning after the Iowa caucus, and we get the numbers. We get the math. Um, Trump's at 51 DeSantis is at 21, Haley's at 19, but you don't have a day to evaluate. I mean, you kind of sit down at 6.05 in the morning and you, I don't want to say you ad lib and make it up as you go, but you're digesting in real time what the data means, uh, what the interpretation is, uh, what does it say about New Hampshire? What does it say about South Carolina? Um, I mean, I'll give you my evaluation. I mean, we can talk about Joy Reid. We can talk about Rachel Maddow. We can talk about the fact that CNN showed CNN and MSNBC showed the Haley and DeSantis speech in its entirety. They didn't win. Um, they didn't show the Trump speech. 
because they said they're not in the um, in the business of allowing liars uh, forums of which to. I mean, they forget the uh, the fact that he's the the eventual Democrat nominee and a former American president, Republican nominee. Well, a Republican president, excuse me, the Republican nominee and former president of the United States. Um, they've deemed him a liar, peddles um, peddles fantasy, so he's not allowed to speak on their on their network. Um, because they're in the business of journalistic integrity. Oh yeah, yeah. Rachel All Maddow. about the truth. Uh, and and somebody blistered. Hannity accused Maddow of being a conspiracy theorist. Mm, okay, um, a lot of us out there, uh, a conspiracy theorist, and a um and ca- kind of a dunce. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what he said. It wasn't dunce. It was a conspiracy theorist and a political hack, something to that effect. Twitter lit up. Did you not know that she went to Stanford? Did you not know she went to Oxford? Did you not know she had a political science degree from Harvard? And and I tweeted, I don't think Hannity ever accused her of being uneducated. But he said she's a political theorist and, excuse me, a conspiracy theorist and a political hack. She's highly educated. She's extremely educated. And I've said before, I think Rachel, Rachel Maddow is a very bright and capable lady. But but I think she has sold her, or MSNBC has probably sold its soul to making sure they don't give Trump the time of day. I'm telling you guys, the most important in the Trump comeback story. You ready? Josh, Reb, who are the most important people in the Trump comeback story? Uh, let, let, let's, let's ask this question before we go there. You ready? If Donald Trump wins the 2024 presidency, is it the craziest political story in American history? I mean, he won't be the first guy to run and win, run and lose, run and win again. Um, but is it the craziest, craziest political story in American history? It's certainly of yeah. our time. Right. Of our lifetime. Of, of our time, period. I mean, that we've never seen anything remotely close to how crazy this is. Um, I'm, I think it's all time. When you think about all the forces working against Donald Trump, um, it's the craziest political story of all time. And we've heard the story about duels and, you know, just the rough and tumble, very rough and sometimes violent uh, history in presidential politics in the past. But you're right. There's something about this, and, and it has to do with the, you know, the all the weaponization of different, you know, FBI, CIA, DOJ, and the way they're going after one media. single guy. Media. Oh, yeah. Media in, in perfect concert. with It is very unique, no doubt about it. Okay, who is the most important person? Who's responsible for Trump's comeback? For his comeback. I mean, who's, who's, resp- who's most responsible? Give me, give me the two or three people most responsible for the Trump com- Because Ron DeSantis, I mean, I went back and read some things last night that he said when he considered, contemplated, he was encouraged to get in. And DeSantis basically believed or was told or was led to believe that he made a calculus. I mean, he made a decision. And, you know, at the time, it probably looked like a reasonable decision. DeSantis believed that Trump's legal challenges would be so consuming, he'd step aside. Or he believed that the GOP voters were ready now to move on. I mean, he's wrong on both accounts, but those are the, because we've often wondered, why did he wait? I mean, DeSantis is a young guy. Why did he wait? He's, he's, he has an opportunity to be the, the darling of the, uh, of the GOP if he, or this, you know, new GOP, not the old GOP, obviously, but this new formulating GOP. But I wrote down 
Trump's legal challenges would be so consuming, he'd have to step aside. I mean, they, the challenges have been consuming, but they've been an integral part of the campaign. Um, the GOP voters are not ready to move on. It's obvious they aren't ready to move on. So if DeSantis made his decision based on that analysis, whether he made it by himself with his team externally, I mean, he made that decision. And those were the the reasons that he thought now might be uh, the right time. Because there's kind of an old saying in politics, you can wait your opportunity away. I mean, if you're waiting on the perfect time, you'll end up a 75-year-old guy that wondered why he didn't do it, you know, this time or that time. There's always a reason not to do it. I mean, you'll never find the perfect opportunity in American politics. But who do we owe the most credit to for the rejuvenation and the comeback story that is now Donald Trump winning in Iowa. It'll probably be close in New Hampshire. He'll kill it in South Carolina, and then it's over. Um, Who do we owe the most credit to? Who deserves the most credit for Trump making this comeback that he has? I mean, it's an obscure name now, but it wasn't then. You ready? Mm -hmm. Alvin Bragg. Okay. Alvin Bragg. I mean, if you go back and look at the trajectory of polling, uh, approval, disapprove, favorable, uh, not favorable. Um, would you vote for Trump or not? Alvin Bragg was the first guy legally to go after Trump. And I went back, Haley and I were talking a little bit last night. I went back and looked. And you know, but th- th- there is a play, a Real Clear Politics has all these graphs and, and charts and aggregates. And you can go back and, and clearly see that the, the week or two following Alvin Bragg going after Donald Trump in New York City Trump took off like a jet. I mean, he took off like a rocket ship. And the big loser was DeSantis. The big loser was Haley. Haley hadn't been the big loser in that regard because Nikki was never going to run as Trump-like. I mean, she was going to run as a, you know, a former, what am I trying to say? I I, I don't want to say a relic. That's unfair. But, But somebody who was very popular in the Republican Party's former days, a Jeb Bush, if you will, a John Kasich, if you will, a Chris Christie, if you will. And, you know, Nikki's different. She's an Indian female, um, probably a little better on the stump than all the others. Um, I mean, Nikki said something stupid yesterday. I I don't know. I mean, I, I, I stand by my comments, guys. Her political instincts are not conservative. They're not very good. She is unbelievable when rehearsed. She is unbelievable when coached. She is as good as there is in America today when someone's coaching and preparing and she's rehearsing and she's got these talking points and these punchlines. It's it's a little go girl go for me, but I mean I get it. I mean that's popular amongst some of the um less informed voters in America, but it's just bizarre to me that she said yesterday we've never been a racist country. Really? Okay. Tell, 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 tell people who own slaves that. Tell slaves that. We've never been a racist country. I don't understand the tone deafness. I mean, I just don't. You know, the three or four or five times she's been caught off script, she makes these big, big mistakes. And, and I, you know, as good as she is when coached and rehearsed, she may be that bad when she's ad-libbing. I mean, she may be that bad when she's not scripted. And that's why I don't think Nikki has a a future in today's Republican Party. The one thing the Republican voter does not want are are plasticated candidates. You know, the uh, the poll tested, 
the um the 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 club for growth said x the cato institute said y um you know the uh the congressional committee fundraising organization gave her high marks i mean i just think the gop voter today are, are not enamored at all uh with that 8436610937 is our number let's take our first break of the morning we'll be back in just a few moments 8436610937 remember Toward the end of last week, we had this debate about chaos and confusion and controversy, and we believed, or I did, I can't speak for for my partners in crime here, but I did, Josh. I felt that if Trump's talking about immigration and inflation, he's winning. If he's talking about January 6th and the 2020 election, he's losing. Mm-hmm. And, and I've kind of considered, uh, I think he's still better off talking about immigration and inflation. I think the polls clearly show that the American public don't believe the Biden administration have done a good job at all securing the border. I mean, they're, they're really, I mean, they're, they're genuinely concerned. And the more Abbott and DeSantis ship, uh, some of these border state governors ship illegal immigrants to other places, it creates an even bigger story. So I think immigration is very much in Trump's favor. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, now build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. That's a part of the debate. He'll have to defend that at some point in time. But, but I think you make Biden play defense on immigration. You make the Republicans, give me the Democrats, play defense. The, the, the January 6th story is something I find so riveting because n- most Americans believe that Trump inspired, instigated, maybe not, you know, incited an insurrection, but I've said it, he peddled fantasy and it got out of hand and it was a bad day in America. I mean, it's not as simple as that. But if I had to put it on a bumper sticker, Trump peddled fantasy. It was a bad day. A riot got too rowdy, and things happened that we wish never had happened. Uh, but there was a lot more to it than that. I mean, I can say that because I'm not in prison for 18 years. I mean, I can say that. I'm not facing some sort of federal charge. There's this story, and I think Barry was the one that brought it up yesterday. It is completely out of the mainstream. The Blaze, Glenn Beck's network, has a couple of investigative journalists that don't work necessarily for the Blaze, but they're contracted. I mean, they do some things for John Solomon at Just the News. I mean, there's a couple of folks who do things for, I mean, they'd be freelance reporters, but they're investigative in nature. Um, they did pretty a pretty deep dive, and I told Rev this during the break. They did a pretty deep dive on some... Uh, remember the January 6th commission. I mean, everybody on the commission had voted to impeach Trump. Most had voted to impeach Trump twice. Um, who was the speaker at the time? I mean, it was not Jordan. It was not, uh, who would have been the speaker when, uh, not Kevin McCarthy, uh, before McCarthy. Yeah. Pelosi. Before, but, yeah but, but who was the majority leader? It might've been McCarthy. McCarthy, I think was the minority leader and McCarthy wanted to put Jim Jordan and someone else on the J6 commission. And Pelosi said no. I mean, they're basically Trump puppets, Trump surrogates. We're not going to have that nonsense. First time in American history that the majority leader, the speaker in this case, told the minority leader, we're having a, we're having a committee and we're going to make some pretty crucial decisions, but you can't put who on you want to put on despite you being the minority leader and they are a member of the minority. So Pelosi basically picked all the Democrats and the Republicans and Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger who are just Trump haters. I mean, they're, they're absolute Trump haters. Probably as, as much as any Democrat I know 
Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger uh, are no longer in Congress because Trump whooped them. Um, I mean, he took it personal. He's vindictive. Um, good for him. But anyway, the J6 commission made a lot of their determinations on some of the um, the video surveillance footage they had of the events. And we were concerned that they weren't telling the whole story. I mean, obviously, when everybody on that committee had voted to impeach Donald Trump and wanted Trump banished from politics forever and ever and ever and ever, you felt like it was going to be a reach to get both sides of the story, to get a fair um, shake. So when Johnson, well, let me give McCarthy a little credit. When McCarthy became speaker, he released some of the footage. When Johnson became speaker, he basically released all the footage. And there are thousands of hours of video surveillance footage made available to the general public now. The Blaze has this investigative journalist that they enlisted the services of, and he began viewing the footage and trying to make heads or tails of what's happening and who's telling the truth and who's not telling the truth. And the I think it's the Oath Keepers. I think it's the, there, there were several members of the organization known as the Oath Keepers. I don't know anything about them. I mean, I don't. I've heard the name Proud Boys. I've heard the name Oath Keepers. I don't have any idea. Uh, are they Hell's Angels or are they Sunday school teachers? I don't know. I don't have any idea what they do, where they do, how they do, and who they do, what, how, and where with. But some of those guys, some of those ladies are in prison, and one is serving 18 years. I think there's a couple of others with six-year sentences, and one of the prime witnesses was Pelosi's head of security. I'll get his name here in a minute, but Pelosi's head of security was a fact witness in, you know, investigating the Oath Keepers, and what did they do? And it seems now that he may have perjured himself. He told as a witness the J6 Commission he was here, he saw this, he was there, he saw that, and the the Blaze investigative reporter are looking at the video footage and none of the facts align. He's never where he says he was. At 2.12 on that afternoon, he said he was here and he saw this. Well, the video footage shows him somewhere in another building somewhere. But, I mean, once again, he was a fact witness in the investigation of the Oath Keepers. I'm not saying what the Oath Keepers did or did not do. I don't have any idea how violent they were or not. I don't have any idea whether this person should be in jail for 18 years or that person should be in jail for six years. But it's pretty obvious now that Pelosi's head of security was a critical fact witness in the investigation, and there's reason to believe via video surveillance that he was never where he said he was. And that's perjury. I mean, that that's perjury. And I told Rev during the break, instead of focusing on Pelosi's head of security and perjury, let's use this as a reason to open a fair J6 commission. Let's reinvestigate January 6th. Now, now, normally I'd say, no, let's let that be. I mean, that's water under the bridge, and I'm sorry. I mean, if I were in prison for 18 years, I mean, I'd want it reopened. I'd want it revisited. I'd want it relitigated. I'd want to know all the facts, and I get all that. But but the political operative in me says, yeah, but we're having to defend ourselves again on January 6th, and I don't know how you win that argument. But I think what what Johnson, what Speaker Johnson could do, I mean, if, if and once again, you you got to, I mean, they got to validate these timestamps. And some have masks on and some don't have masks. You got to make damn sure, Reb, that the timestamps are genuine. They're real. They've not been doctored. They've not been manipulated. You got to make sure 
that Dave Baker is Dave Baker and, and Josh with a weird name is Josh with a weird name and Ken is Ken. I mean, you got to make sure before you pitch that, before you pitch that proposition and, and I'm not comfortable yet. I mean, I watched the video last night. I watched it in its entirety. I read two articles last night about it, but, but I just think before you go to speaker Johnson and say, these people are in prison, they may need to be in prison. But we need to reinvestigate because one of the fact witnesses perjured himself. And, and once again, it's not about Pelosi's head of security and perjury. To me, it's about getting to the bottom of January 6th and allowing the new video, all the video, I mean, unedited, all of the video, including, uh, you know, Daniel Boone with a whatever, Qan Shaman or whatever they call the guy. You know, I mean, let, let's get to the bottom of it. And, and, and once, I mean, the, the people may need to be in prison. I mean, they made it to be in jail for, for 18 years. But if someone on Pelosi's staff, her head of security, perjured himself, we need to know that. And if he perjured himself, who else was in on it? I mean, was Pelosi in on it? Uh, it's pretty obvious now that her daughter was there. She's a videographer, and she was there to make a documentary. Now, but they're making a documentary about Pelosi's fearless leadership during the, um, the riot or the insurrection of January 6th, and I would normally say, hey, guys, let's let that be. I mean, let's let that be. But I do believe that this is an opportunity to go back down the road of J6. And, and, if, and if Johnson can encourage his party to, to allow Hakeem Jeffries, I mean, let's do this the way it was supposed to be done to begin with. I mean, Hakeem Jeffries will appoint the Democrat members of the commission. The speaker will appoint the Republican members of the commission. And let's make available all the facts, all the data, all the analysis, all the video footage. And let's get to the bottom of it once and for all. And I think there's a chance that you can sell to the American people. This was always a witch hunt. This was never a legitimate commission. This was a bunch of people out to get Donald Trump. And in the process of getting Donald Trump, they put people in jail for 18 years with federal offenses. I just think the, the fact that Nancy Pelosi's head of security may have perjured himself is a unique opportunity to reopen January 6th. We're not talking about, hey, I think that might be that guy that said that over there in that corner. The hell does that mean? Nothing, nothing. But if there has been investigative work done and we can legitimately and clearly show that Pelosi's chief of staff perjured himself. You owe it to the people in America to relaunch an investigation, not into him, but into January 6th, because there's no way he operated alone. I mean, there's no way that he just made a decision on his own to lie about where he was and what he saw. I mean, there, you'll never convince me of that. I mean, that guy's a careerist. I mean, he's a bureaucrat. He ain't putting his livelihood at risk. He's not putting his arm, um, his deal on the line unless someone with higher authority convinced him that we've got your back. So, so that's, you know, once again, immigration, inflation, I think Trump wins. J6 and the 2020 election, I thought Trump lost. I mean, I thought every time he began discussing that, but I do believe that this new revelation, if it's true, and you got to validate these timestamps, you got to make sure that people are who you say they are, and, and there's some mask here, and there's some, you know, I mean, you know how video is. Video surveillance is not always the best picture in the world. There needs to be a an absolute analysis done by the Republican leadership in the House. And if they are convinced 
that Pelosi's head of security was not where he said he was and may, in fact, have perjured himself as a fact witness in the J6 commission. You reopen an investigation. Once again, I felt Trump needed to let it be. I, I'm not sure now. I am absolutely not sure now. And the appetite for that is growing, guys. I mean, the polls clearly show that the the driver in the Republican Party today, the driver in the Trump movement, the driver in the RFK movement is a distrust for government. An absolute, unequivocal distrust for the federal government. That's the driver. That's the most powerful political force in America today. This validates that. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Cross Hill, good morning. Uh, good morning, fellas. Uh, yeah, Ken, I, I agree with you. There's there's a lot of the, of the untold story about that January 6th uh, commission and everything. But before you get out of the athletic hour, you kind of got me uh, intrigued here on your NIL discussion. And uh, you said a key word there, uh, and I hope maybe at some point we can understand a little better, and that is independent contractor. You know, as a businessman, you had to know the difference between an employee of your truck building operation and an independent contractor. And you said that uh, it seems to, you know, the whole purpose of this and, and what they're trying to do anyway is keep the kids from being an employee of the university. And, and if, if you are aware, there are a series of tests that uh, you look at and apply to someone to determine whether or not they're an independent contractor. And I think as those tests are applied to a, to a kid that's getting NIL money, it seems to me they are an employee of somebody. Now, uh, because, you know, an, an employee is controlled by the employer. They're told when to be there, what to do, how to do it. The employer provides the tools of the trade. So the kids are getting all of this. And so uh, how, uh, my curiosity is, how, how would that, how's this income treated to the student, the student athlete? Are they an employee of the collective? Or, and then the collective is just sort of farming them out like a temp to the university? Or are they an employee of the university? And of course, there are you know tax ramifications to them by being an independent contractor because if they're an independent contractor, then they've got to include that on their tax return and basically match the social security tax. So there's a tax situation here that I'm really interested in. I don't know if you can expound on that at this point in time, but I'm just curious as to how uh, Rattler's income was treated. Uh, Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. I mean, I can speak personally to that. Um, I don't want to go into details and specifics, but I got real in, involved. I mean, how I get myself in these places, I have no idea. <laughs> but I got real involved in the Gamecock Collective, Very more involved than I wanted to be. Um, but I'm the kind that believes that something needs to be done. I mean, anyway, uh, story for another day. I was tired of nothing getting done, so I got involved and made sure some things did get done. I'll just leave it there. Imagine that. Um, and made some people mad and made some people happy. Um, Rattler's, Rattler's income, quote unquote, was taxed. I mean, he has a, a, a responsibility. I mean, that, that is income, name, image, and likeness. He was paid X number of dollars for X number of hours of his name, image, and likeness. I'll give you an example. Spencer went to children's hospitals. He went to football camps. He went to such and such. Now, we know that he's paid to play football. 
I mean, we know that going to a children's home is not worth, you know, $10,000 a month or $20,000 a month. But there's a, I mean, we're, we're, we're being creative. Sam understands that. I mean, if he understands employment and uh, independent contractors and, I mean, it's an abuse of the independent contractor law. There's no doubt about it. It's a, a very liberal interpretation of the independent contractor statute. There's no doubt about that. Uh, it's not as big as an abuse of FedEx. I mean, FedEx is the biggest abuse in the world, the independent contractor. FedEx, the, the, the person putting a package on your doorstep today doesn't work for FedEx, but they do. FedEx runs their business, but FedEx is allowed to call them an independent contractor, but run their business. In other words, go buy those trucks and deliver these packages. We don't, we're not responsible for the truck payment. We're not responsible for workers' comp, all the, all the other ills that come along. I mean, it's a very... It's a very liberal interpretation of independent contractor. When I started working in the in the collective space, it reminded me of the independent contractor relationship that FedEx has. I mean, FedEx abuses that. That's their that's their competitive advantage over UPS. UPS has union drivers. They make a lot more money. They get a lot more time off. They get a lot more more benefit. The FedEx driver owns his business, but FedEx runs it for him. I mean, he really. He's afforded the opportunity to to cover a certain area and deliver so many packages, but FedEx tells him everything to do. But the guy can put his name on the side of a truck and say, "I own I own my business." It's an abuse. And if it, I mean, I believe some states. There's a big lawsuit in Oregon. A retired pilot got into the FedEx contractor business, and they had a a big you know to do, a big run in, and this person is suing FedEx, basically saying. You know, this is not independent contractor arrangement. You run my business, and um, and you violate some of the statutes. And anyway, um, in the collective space, I mean, I, I don't know how you don't eventually end up with a student athlete and employee of the university. Um, you create the best language you can. You try to keep the collective in place to provide that layer of insulation. But um, but the taxes. I'll give you another example. Some of the local dealers, both Gamecock and Tiger, provided cars to some of the star athletes. And, I mean, it's their responsibility to pay the taxes on the car. You know, that that is a, I mean, that's that's not income, but it's, it's treated as, you know, it's, it's income. I mean, you know, what is that car worth every month? Uh, you got to itemize that. I'll tell you the one thing I'm proud of, and, and I can say this, Sam, Garnet Trust, I mean, that, that's the collective that I'm familiar with and have been somewhat involved in Garnet trust provided a tax attorney and an accountant and a financial planner. We made available a tax attorney and accountant, a financial planner to these kids who were getting money because they don't know what to do. They don't have any idea what to do, but some, some Gamecock alumnus and some tigers, I would imagine they did it pro bono. They gave financial advice, some legal advice and some tax advice about where you can get yourself in trouble. And Spencer Rattler would have obviously been the highest profile. I think Will Shipley at Clemson would have been the highest profile player to get, you know, a, a, a good amount of money. I mean, a, a, a large amount of money. I'm not a good amount, a large amount of money to play football. And, and I can't speak to Clemson. I don't have any idea what sort of obligations Will Shipley had to earn the money in name, image, and likeness. But I know that Spencer got X number of dollars every month for X number of hours in service. In other words, Garnet Trust said, hey, we need you to be at this car dealer tomorrow from 2 to 4. We need you to be at this children's hospital from 4 to 6. We need you to be here and there. And, and there was kind of a deal. The contract said, you owe us this many hours of your name, image, and likeness. Um, 
signed football helmets, signed footballs, I mean, all these other sorts of things. But we did provide um, tax advice, accounting advice, and legal advice to every player that entered into an agreement with, uh, with Garnet Trust. Now, where do we go from here? I don't know. I mean, we got a bill, an NIL bill, that creates some clarity. And I think it basically, I mean, what, what you're doing is taking the decision out of the NCAA's hands. The University of Mississippi, I mean, University of Missouri, if, you, if you're a football-headed bozo, Florida State got in trouble last week by, by violating some of the NIL statutes and bylaws. The Missouri statute, the, the Missouri legislation that passed in the Missouri General Assembly basically says if the NCAA comes after you, we've got your back. I mean, it's not, that's not the exact language, but over a beer and a hot dog, that's how it's in, interpreted in other words, if the NCAA had tried to come after Missouri like they have Florida State, the General Assembly basically has language in there that says, screw the NCAA. You answer to us. The University of Missouri is a publicly funded in-state university. We make the laws in this state. NCAA take a hike. I mean, that's basically I mean that I'm paraphrasing. I kind of like that. But that's basically what the language, what the language says. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is an independent contractor-like arrangement, um, and you don't expect eighteen-year-old kids to understand all involved with those transactions. But uh, when they get a car, you know that there's somebody that gives them advice about, hey, here's the consequences of getting this of getting this vehicle. It ain't like the old days, bag of cash and a car key, unless you transfer, <laughs> <laughs> and you can't tell anybody because we'll kill you if you do. Take a break. Back in a few. I don't know that we're literally plowing the field. That's kind of a um, right. That that's a that's an expression, right, Josh? I mean, we're not plowing. That's the, right. You ever plowed a field, Josh? No. You ever plowed a field, Ray? No, sir. You don't know what you're missing. <laughs> Let's go to <laughs> the ball. Have you? Of course, I have. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Doesn't sound. I fun. plowed them under. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, let's go to the phone. Jason Marion. Hello. Good morning, fellas. Uh, Ken, you just talked about. Uh, contract relations and FedEx and someone with experience, you were absolutely right. They dictate everything that the contractor can do, what they can't do. Um, it's a criminal it, enterprise, Jason. It's a criminal enterprise. I, I, I equate the FedEx it, arrangement to Shawshank Redemption. The terminal is the warden, and you you hope to be the good inmate. And if you're not, somebody else will be the good inmate. But it's an abuse of the independent contractor arrangement. And I'm curious, I don't know if you've heard this, but uh, there's talks, well, actually, it's not talks, it's, it's, it's already going to happen, that FedEx Express and FedEx Ground are going to combine. For those of you out there that don't know, FedEx Express and FedEx Ground are two separate entities, kind of like Sam's Club and Walmart. Same company, but just two separate entities. So I would love to know what talks are going to happen between the contractors and FedEx, you know, with, when we have all this extra work. You know, doing all the express stuff. I mean, who's getting more money? I mean, it's it's a mess, but I don't know. You thank you, Jason. Sound like Jason wanted somebody to vent to. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't have a question. He's frustrated <laughs> with the arrangement. Um, I mean, it, it's it's an abusive relationship, and here's the problem in that deal. I mean, I can't speak to the uh, well. I mean, I can to the independent contractor um, in general. I mean, I, I understand the generalities of an independent contractor. I mean, Rev, Rev's an employee of community broadcasters. I'm not. I mean, I'm an independent. You hear me fussing about health care. I mean, I'm an eat-what-you-kill guy. I've got about three 
people that I do work for. And then I've got some business interests of my own. But I have to figure out my health insurance. I mean, I'm not an employee of community broadcasting, not an employee of uh, this business, not an employee of that business. I am a partner in an LLC. I am a independent contractor for for such and such. There's a lot of advantages. I mean, there's some some freedom and liberation, and I'm held in. I mean, I hold myself accountable, and nobody else breathes down my neck about you know why didn't you do this or did you leave work at four o'clock today? I mean, there's there's a little beauty in that, but there's a a personal responsibility and a personal I don't know, a degree of success you got to hold yourself to or you don't, you don't make it. But, I, you know, I'm interested in the lawsuit in, in Oregon and Washington. There's a lady who has um, the right to – it would be a, a somewhat of an independent service provider. Um, she's got a contract with FedEx to provide a service in a certain area, and she basically says, I don't run my business. I mean, they make me think I do. They let me put my name on the side of my truck. They run my business. So why would I want the the burden of being an independent contractor? Why would I want to own all these trucks and fix all these trucks and worry about all these employees and provide benefit for all these employees when they tell me when I can leave the terminal, when I got to be back, who can drive, who can't drive, what truck can go on the road, what truck can't go on the road. I mean, it's such a one-sided relationship, but it goes back to the golden rule. He who has the gold rules. Guess what? FedEx got a lot of gold. Not as much as UPS, but a lot of gold goes to, uh, where is it, Memphis, Tennessee? Their their headquarters. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I want to say this real quick. The most interesting, and I think Sam will appreciate it, the most interesting part of my being involved in a collective has been, <laughs> you ready? The, um, the seeing the world a different way from the private sector and the bureaucratic side of it, you know, the public sector, the <laughs> university, I mean, it, it, they've got a certain way they do things and along come these cowboys with a collective and they've got another way of doing things. And I really believe that they fumigate the room when we leave. I mean, I think it's got to be the same way. It, really and truly the collective is the convergence of the bureaucratic university and the wild, wild west of college football paying players to play a game. We know that's happened in, in days gone by. We know that. I mean, for somebody to suggest that, well, I mean, Alabama just happened to be real good, you know, and these other schools just happened. No, they figured out a way to take care of kids better than everybody else. They were just better at it. I'm not saying Alabama doesn't have tradition, and I'm not saying Auburn and Texas and LSU don't have enormous tradition. I don't want to pick on my Clemson brethren, but they've done a good job. Of, um, of winning football games in an era where you couldn't legally pay players. And and I, once again, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. I mean, it's against NCAA regulation, but I think the NCAA is a farce anyway. And I think NCAA is a joke in itself anyway. Um, I'm for paying players. I am for paying players. I've always been for paying players because coaches get $10 million, Assistant coaches get $3 million, Universities get a billion. And the kid gets the value of an education which ain't worth as much as it was once. I mean, it's, it's not fair to the kid. So anything to make it fair to the kid, and I accept where I'm kind of making it up as we go now, but the most interesting interactions in, in the collective world today is when the collective sits down with the university and on one side of the table, everybody's a bureaucrat. And, and you know, the other side of the table of the collective personnel, and they all grew up in the private sector. And it's kind of the, um, and I'm convinced that when we left USC, we've been at three or four meetings on the campus at USC in the Rice Athletic Complex. 
And I'm convinced when we left, they called a um, an exterminator and said, hey, come fumigate this building. <laughs> I mean, they, 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 these cats just roll different than we do. And there's no doubt there's a different pace <laughs> in bureaucratic world than I'm there sure. is in the free market. And it's really the collective is kind of the free market meets the bureaucracies of universities. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on. Hey, guys. What I'm getting ready to say may give some of your listeners a headache. And uh, that's to tell them all they need to know. But I'll tell you, um, looking at my clients that are left, they have certain things in common. They're white. They're educated. They're rich. And they're anti-Christian. And I mean anti-Christian. And then you take that one step further to the entire world. What the most, I think I can say pretty, with pretty much certainty, that the majority of the leaders in the world today are anti-Christian and godless. Damn near everyone. I don't believe that there's much God there being Christian and God, and God-fearing people in our government. I don't believe they're in our Senate. I don't believe they're in our House. I don't believe they're in our institutions. I don't believe that they're in our corporations. And I believe that they look upon us as the enemy. Now, and that's where I think we're making our mistake. And I believe what I told you yesterday, that they are are going to kill Trump. I don't mean uh, Democrats. People that call themselves Democrats people that call themselves Republicans, people that call whatever they did, they are not any of those things. They are the cathedral, as you say, kid. And the cathedral is anti-Christian, doesn't, and they're anti-God, and they are, and they are like I said before, they're, their God is government, and their religion is politics, and they are out to destroy you and I, they want to put us in jail. They want to do anything and everything they can do up to probably killing us. And I'm telling folks right now, they need to realize that this is absolutely good versus evil, God versus Satan, Christian versus the, of the followers of the dark side, and this is not what it is. And it is worldwide. And you need to look at evil for where, where it is. All of these guys may get statues, and they may get roads saved out from all that, but I promise you, they're going to spend eternity in hell for that old 85 years of being famous and rich and powerful on earth, living in the flesh. But they're going to live, they'll spend eternity in hell. You can believe that. And more preachers need to have the courage to say that. I think there's one in Florence that does, and he knows what I'm talking about. Anyway, you guys take care. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Josh, if you accept God as real and, and, and kind of the North Star of your life, what is your obligation to humanity? I mean, is it fundamentally different than if you don't? I mean, let, let's just, for argument's sake, let, let's, just, let's just, I mean, I don't have any idea if I'm right or not, so don't, don't condemn me for saying this, but the name comes to mind, Klaus Schwab. I mean, he's at, we're, we're having the Davos meetings, and he's, you know, the World Economic Forum, and he's a big shot. I think he's the founder of the World Economic Forum and all these, you know, um, economic and political heavyweights. They, they fly to Davos and they get together and they basically say, um, hey, mankind is, is, is um, mankind needs us to guide them to a better way. 
if, 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 if Klaus Schwab believes in God, I don't have any idea if he does or not, but if Klaus Schwab believes in God and he's head of the World Economic Forum and all these political and, and political and economic heavyweights go to, to Davos and God is at the center of that because Klaus Schwab didn't go have it any other way. I mean, it's somewhat of a human revival. I mean, we're here politically and economically to make the world a better place. And, and we're, you know, we're in prominent positions of power and influence. I mean, the guy, you know, the guy, with all due respect, the guy driving the truck can't change the world. We can. I mean, we can fundamentally direct a course for humanity to follow. And, and we're either believers in God Almighty or we aren't. What is, I mean, this is kind of a weird hypothetical to play out, but how fundamentally different are those paths? If those political and economic heavyweights gather in Davos and say a prayer, in Jesus' name we pray, and then they break out into, you know, or, or divide themselves into breakout sessions, and, and God is the central focus in making the world a better place. I mean, that's fundamentally different, isn't it? I mean, it's not a little tweak. It's not turning the, the thermostat from 68 to 69, or from 68 to 67. I mean, that's turning the thermostat from 68 to 105 or from 68 to 25. Is that, is that fair, Josh? Uh, absolutely. So, so what do you make of that proposition? I mean, you don't know and I don't know. But what would the world look like if God was at the center of Davos and if all these heavyweights gathered and their sincere objective was to make the world a better place? You, you see what I'm, I mean? Isn't that kind of what Breeze is saying? That the world is run by a bunch of godless, self-centered, ambitious, <sighs> egotistical human beings who don't give any consideration to God Almighty, and 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 the eighty years I'm here, or the eighty years I'm here, and uh, you know I, I go to the dustbin of history, literally and figuratively, for that matter. Um, but I think there's some legitimacy to that. I mean, I do believe that that some of these fundamentally big decisions are made. Void of God, void of God's involvement, God's guidance. Somebody, I've got, I've got about three or four really, really dear friends in my life. And six or seven years ago, well, I mean, when Trump shows up, eight, eight years ago now, we began debating in a very intellectual way over lunch. How did this happen? I mean, how did we get to a place? Because we all agreed. I mean, we all come from kind of places where Trump would be revered. Lamar, Timmonsville, Pamplico. Um, you know, the rural Effingham area. And all of us kind of thought that the mainstream media didn't see this. The political elites didn't see this. But but all of us eventually landed. Trump is, I mean, he's symptomatic. I mean, he's, he's, he's a result of something gone awry. He's a result of something gone bad. The American government gone bad leads to you know, kind of a crazy man, a strong man. I mean, we argued about that. You know, we made, we're drowning in bad decisions. Somebody's got to fix this. We, we all kind of sort of look for a strong man when we think we're drowning in, in bad decisions. And somebody's got to come up here and make a, make a several good decisions to get us back on, on course. But, but my friends, Josh, believed that eventually the line would not be MAGA or not, liberal or not, conservative or not, intellectual or not, neoconservative or not, but, but good and evil. And the inspiration for good, uh, the maintainer of good is God in heaven. And, and if you're not a believer in God, I mean, if you're an atheist, then w what do you use as a barometer or benchmark? I mean, what do you 
base your decisions on. And and I, I think, I mean, I really believe, and this gets funky, and this is the macro of all macros, but ultimately the world will fail because it believes man's top of the food chain. I mean, it, it will refuse to submit itself to God's will and God's sovereignty and God's, you know, uh, omnipotent. I mean, it's just I mean, omnipresence and you, you know where I'm headed. What do you make of that, Joshua? I mean, that's not a question. But but you you are a young Christian. Mm-hmm. Faith is a big part of your life, more than our listeners know. I mean, you and I have had private conversations. I know how important your faith is fundamentally in your existence. Most young people don't talk like you do about their faith. But what do you make of that narrative? I completely agree, and I think it's a simp- It's it's really simple. I mean, you're you're getting into it, but basically, the fundamentals of Christianity is it is a denial of self and a you know submission to a higher power, and that higher power in the Christian faith care cares about every single person on this planet, sees them equally in terms of his love for each of them. And I believe that if someone is truly a Christian, if they're true, and it's not just when, you know, the Bible says we're saved by faith, that, that there's a difference between faith and belief. Someone can believe in God, but to have faith in God, to truly be a follower of Christ, I believe will fundamentally change a person in their, in their heart, in their soul. And I think that if the world were led by those kinds of people, it would become a better place. So you believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic was the catalyst for the ascent of the Western world. Um, the Western world began applying Judeo-Christian standards, and I'm talking about human rights and dignity and respect for one another and a caring for your fellow man. Um, that would be the Judeo-Christian ethic. Fair enough? The Christian ethic, well, yes. I mean, no, no, I, mean, I think you're wrong there. I mean, I think the, the Judeo-Christian ethic is a— is, is paramount to civilization and society doing better for itself. Why, why do you leave Judeo out of it? I mean, I'd be very interested in that. Why, why don't you believe? I mean, I've got Jewish friends. Other than the long-haired guy, we have the same worldview. Yeah, I mean, they, and they, I'm... They, they have a deep caring for humanity. They have a respect for their fellow man. They are charitable in nature. Everything about them reminds me of how I was raised to be. I'm not like that all the time. Please understand. I mean, I I believe in the Judeo-Christian ethic. I am a Christian. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I I believe in the in the in the virgin birth. I mean, Christmas just in the. I believe in the in the crucifixion. I believe in the resurrection. I don't always live my life as those guideposts, as those north star. But 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 I believe that. The Judeo-Christian ethic has led to the Western world being a, a beacon of hope for humanity in general. And as we begin neglecting our responsibility of beholdenness to the Judeo-Christian ethic, we see a world in decline. We, see a, we see a darker world. We, we see more meetings at Davos where God is not center. And hu- human beings begin making all the rules of which we all have to live by and the world begins a pretty dramatic decline. We'll take a break. Don't want to take too long here. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is a weird way to try and explain something we're talking. Thank you, Breeze, for leading us down this road. But this (laughs) is a weird way to explain this. 
the majority of people listening to my voice will do this, but not that. I mean, Rev and I were talking during the break. Rev will do this, but he's not doing that. I'll do this, but I'm not doing that. I'm not sure I should do this, but, but I can justify it. I mean, I can make it make sense. It may not be right, but I'll do it. And I can, I can in some way, shape, or form self-justify, but I ain't doing that. I mean, you're asking me to do, well, to me, that's the consciousness of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's something inside of me that dwells in me that says, hey, man, you can't do that. Now, I'm not saying I never do that. Of course, at times I do that. I wish I hadn't, and there's instant regret. There's remorse. There, there is, there, there's asking for forgiveness. But, but I can justify because I'm a human being. I mean, I'm not a Vulcan. I mean, I can, I can self-justify a lot of things in my life. So I'll do this. I ain't doing that. But what about the people that will do this and that, that don't have the consciousness of God as their guider, as their guiding light and guiding principles? And once again, I'm not being judgmental, and I'm not, I'm certainly not being holier than thou. I am the last, I just said, I don't always not do that. But, but if I choose to do that, there, there's a regret I have, that there's a remorse I have. There's a, once again, an asking for forgiveness. I know I shouldn't have done that. I, I do this. And, and, I, and I think about it, and I struggle with it, but I, I can, oh, yeah, but I mean, I, I, I get why I had to do that. I mean, I, I think God gets why I had to do that. I think, you know, my, my, my business partners, my best friends, my whatever, whatever. I mean, you know, but, but the world is run by people who will do this and that. I mean, the majority of people who rise to tremendous levels of corporate governance, uh, political power, I mean, that, you know, it, it, it's a dog-eat-dog world. I mean, it just is. And if you do this and that, then the sky's the limit. If you do this but not that, at some point in time, you're going to be asked to do that. You say, no, okay, well, the next promotion isn't for you. The presidency's not for you. Being Speaker of the House is not for you. You'll be okay in Congress, but you're not going to be Speaker. You're not going to chair the Finance Committee. You're not going to do X, Y, or Z. I'm not saying everybody's evil. But, but I do believe that there is a concept in life of do this and just self-justify not do that because something says that's just not right. I can't do that. But the world, as we get more godless, as we get less committed to the Judeo-Christian ethic, the world says, well, I mean, why would you do this and that? I mean, if you do this and that, next thing you know, man, you got a corner office at Goldman, and you're making a million dollars a year, and you got a house at the Hampton, and your kids are educated at Ivy League schools. I mean, isn't that what the world says you want? I mean, why would you do this and that? And, and, and once again, I think the more godless we become, the more people will do this and that, and and who's in charge then? Yeah, who, who's running yeah. things? Well, I mean, the people are running things are the people that will do this and that. Let's go to the phone. That's a weird way to explain it, but but I think you understand what I'm talking about. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Florence. Hey, Joe. Hey, guys. I uh, just want to pick up on uh, what Josh was talking about in terms of distinguishing between a Judeo-Christian, uh, the Old Testament, the New Testament. I think the Judeo portion, it was a portion of, of our belief, is a really good start. Um, much like the early astronomers, you know, uh, thought the, the earth was flat or that the, uh, the sun revolved around the earth. But I think that the difference is kind of like uh, the fact that, you know, America is different than England. You know, England is kind of analogous to the Old Testament. They had a pretty good start about how we should view the world. But America didn't buy into the whole monarchy thing and said, we need a little bit more individual freedom. And the, the Jews seem to, you know, 
bet the ranch on legalism and the fact that there's an exclusivity to their beliefs. And the, the, the Christians, because of Jesus, said, no, we're going to kind of replace legalism with this agape love. Uh, you know, because let's face it, I mean, you know, Judeo and Christian are closer than, say, Buddhist and Christian or Hindu and Christian. But, you know, even Mohammed thought that Jesus was a pretty cool prophet. So I think the mistake the Jews made is not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. And those of us who did recognize Jesus as the Messiah are taking that basics that the Jewish uh, thinker started. But I think we're improving it in a way that it's really hard to, 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 to justify not believing all that Jesus said and stood for. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Joe. We're getting philosophical. I thought we were talking about the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire <laughs> primary and, right. and the eventual South Carolina primary. Trump in January yeah. 6th. Mm-hmm. Give me another Celsius in life order <laughs> before we go down this road. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Anthony in North Carolina. Good morning. Hey, fellas. How you doing? Hey, Anthony. Uh, you know how I do it. Every time you bring up religion, uh, your line just start blowing up. But um, even my daddy, my father was a wise man, smart. He's he be seventy five and next month though. But I collect whenever it comes to religion, he comes to he, he becomes a different person. They say religion breeds ignorance. That's what I was saying, whatever though. But he just don't like. How can I say? He uh, believes the unbelievable. Uh, um, your beliefs. And parables are not facts. It's just a way of living. I mean, just me, people have been living on this earth way before Christianity or Islam or any of them religion, and people, it, it was less killing. It was a whole lot less killing um, going on. But I think that we need one of those tests, like you say, whenever you become a citizen of America, and they give you a test of all the questions and see what you know, whatever. I'm quite sure if you give one of those tests, a true test, Many people in America are not Christians. They might know the basic stuff, but they're not Christians. Many people in America, they um, they just like know the basic stuff. But if you think about it, I don't believe it's fair to call America a Christian country because to become a country, America has violated every uh, what's the word for it? every sin, every Ten Commandment there is to become a country. So I just don't feel like using religion with this country is the best thing to, to do because we lead, lead the, the world in prison and abortion and killing and everything that's negative, we lead the world. So when you say that we're a Christian country, that tells them that that's what Christians do. Just like a Muslim country, you might cut your hand off if you're gay or whatever. That's what that country do. We can't a, a, a escape from the stuff that we do here and say that we are Christian. I believe if we had a true test, most people here aren't Christian. They know that basic stuff. I believe I should say Jesus should save me or whatever, though. But when it comes to knowing who wrote the Bible, when it was written, all that kind of stuff, most people here are not Christians. And we are more brainwashed than Josh is, our age people. We grew up on the McGraw-Hill textbooks from Texas that taught everybody. We grew up on backyard preachers. We are... Uh, Josh is learning more because of the internet and he had access to learn more. We are the ones, our age, Ken, I'm 50. I'm sure you see some, but we are more brainwashed than Ken. I mean, I mean, than Josh. And one last thing, you don't think that all this killing we doing all over the country is not making the world an unsafe place for our kids? Come on, um, Ken. It got, all this killing we do, we're killing kids and women all over the world. 
you don't think that in the future the ones who do survive are going to have, have some against all Americans and we can't travel nowhere because all this killing we're doing now? What do you think, Ken? Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate that. A lot that you go on as usual with uh, with Anthony. Uh, I mean, take up the last point first. Um, there, there are certain things in my life, fundamental, that I believed, and it was out of ignorance. I mean, I didn't have an understanding about neoconservatism. I didn't understand. I mean, I'd never read about the American Empire and the post-Second World War I, Bretton Woods and the United Nations and some of these trans. I mean, I, I, you know, I knew of them, but I didn't know about them. I mean, I had no knowledge, no, no, no depth of understanding when it comes to why I believe what I fundamentally believe. I mean, I bought in. I've told Josh and read this, and I've told the listeners this. I mean, I became a neoconservative because that was the Republican thing to do. I mean, I knew I was not a Democrat. I mean, I, knew, I was raised by a self-made businessman. That kind of steered me in the Republican direction. I mean, you pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Rugged individualism, a celebration of limited government. I mean, that, those were the things that I remember my dad talking about. I mean, he didn't talk about it in a political context. It was more about living your life. So the way I was taught to live my life more aligned with the Republican Party. You know, I don't want government in my business. I want to take care of myself and my family my own way. Let me be. Leave me alone. I mean, that's, it's not as simple as that. But conceptually, that's kind of where I landed. And that's where the majority of Republicans, libertarians in particular, um, land. And then you, there's a moment in all of our lives when we kind of want to know more, understand more, have a complex understanding of whatever it is we, we fundamentally believe in. And when I decided to run for office as a Republican, I felt like I owed it to myself and the voters and, and really just, just life in general to understand, okay, I'm a Republican. What do Republicans do? What do they stay? I know what I believe in. And I know what I've been told about the, the GOP and the Democrats. The Democrats are for bigger government and higher taxes and more involvement and more intrusion. And I know that's not me. And I don't think Democrats will deny that. I mean, I think intellectually and philosophically, Democrats believe that the world is a better place when, when government acts more as a referee. I mean, that's fundamentally where I think most Democrats are. Now, you've you got extreme Democrats with transgenderism and abortion and a third trimester. and all, I mean, you know, but those, those are kind of offshoots of the, the mindset of a, a Democrat. I mean, a Democrat believes that life's not fair, the world picks winners and losers, and government in some way, shape, or form has to kind of sort of level that playing field. I don't think that's a, a bizarre thought. I mean, I disagree with it, but I don't think that's crazy. I mean, I think transgenderism, gender dysphoria, is a mental illness. I mean, literally, that's crazy. I mean, I think it's crazy to believe that a minor child should be allowed to enter into a metal contract. But that, you know, that that that's not the philosophical belief that government should act as more of a referee. And I think we're 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 unfair to Democrats when we say, well, you know how those Democrats are. Well, I know some are. I mean, some believe that the the government should be the referee, but gender dysphoria is a mental illness. Now, now they're not the loudest and proudest. I mean, they're not on Twitter. They're not on MSNBC. They're not on CNN. But I believe there are a lot of Democrats that philosophically believe, you know, government is a, is a referee, and it does a better job than the animal spirits of the private sector. Now, now, I believe the animal spirits of the private sector make less mistakes than government does. But all of a sudden, you start talking about, wow, we're going to Vietnam? We're going to Bosnia, Grenada? Afghanistan, Iraq? Israel? Ukraine, Russia, China, Taiwan? What, 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 why? I mean, what, what is at stake?
for average Americans. And, and then you, well, the world's a dangerous place. Well, you got to give me more than that, man. The world's a dangerous place, really? I mean, the world's a dangerous place with America in it. The world's a dangerous place with America out of it. And that's why I am really and truly, that, that's my inspiration to become an America firster, is, is the endless wars that we have involved ourselves in that have left too many American young men and women dead and limping. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Talking about some of the corporate overlords, some of the masters of the universe, those who make the world um, go around. The Federal Aviation Administration, I don't know if you saw this story or not, but they're actively recruiting on their website. I mean, the FAA, uh, remember the door fell off the plane. The FAA is actively recruiting workers, you ready? Now, their words, not mine who suffer from severe intellectual disabilities, psychiatric problems, and other mental and physical conditions under a diversity and inclusion hiring initiative. You can find out more by visiting the agency's website. Um, Targeted disabilities are those disabilities that the federal government, as a matter of policy, has identified for special emphasis in recruiting and hiring. The FAA's website states they include hearing, vision, missing extremities, Partial paralysis, complete paralysis, epilepsy, severe intellectual disability, psychiatric disability, and dwarfism. I don't think you can say dwarfism anymore. I guess if you're the government, you can do what you want, but you better not say dwarf. Um, Smaller people, (laughs) right, Rev? Smaller people. Vertically challenged individuals uh, is how I would refer to people who have (laughs) I have no idea what's politically correct now. Well, I mean, but they've got this initiative. It's part of the FAA's diversity and inclusion hiring plan. Um, I mean, we're just flying jets around the world. Who cares? Um, it, it, it's a little bit, I mean, I'm thinking about severe. Well, I mean, let, let's use their word here. Uh, severe intellectual disability. In, in my youth, that would have been dumb. I mean, somebody with severe intellectual disabilities would have been dumb. Remember, deaf and dumb. We said that back in the day. I know you can't go there any longer. And, and I'm not I'm not trying to say, hey, man, let's make sure these people don't have any opportunity. Of course they deserve opportunity. And I applaud the companies that try to plug in some of these challenged people in certain places. But I don't know if the FAA is the place to do it. I don't know if I want to fly in a steel tube 500 miles an hour at 35,000 feet knowing that the plane has the stamp of approval in diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, I, I don't mind the I grocery competence. Yeah, I mean, I, hey, the company that builds grocery carts, have at it. I mean, let, let's celebrate diversity, equity, and inclusion. And let's take some of these folks who have challenges and incorporate them into the workforce. And if the wheel falls off the grocery cart at the grocery store, uh, I'm a little ticked, but it ain't a big deal. But if I'm on a plane... And I'm flying 600 miles an hour, and I'm 37,000 feet above sea level. I'd like for my people to be not severely um, intellectually impaired. I, I don't care if they're short people or not. I mean, I want competent, smart, quality people. Um, <laughs> does it change your attitude about flying or not? I was real concerned um, when the Dreamliner began having its problems. I mean, you and I have talked about some of the you know, they, they hung the engines in a different place and created some sort of off balance saying, I don't understand propulsion. I don't understand lift. I don't understand 
aerodynamics. I mean, I know what it is, but I don't. Uh, how much lift you got to have? And what was the aerodynamic formula? And how much propulsion? Uh, Talk to Elon Musk. I mean, he's trying to get to bars. He probably answer those questions a lot better than I can. Um, I'm a little bit like Jerry Seinfeld. Just end up where it says on the ticket, and I'm fine. And I think the chances of ending up where it says on the ticket are greater when we're not worried about how diverse the workforce is. Smart people who do understand lift, propulsion, and aerodynamics. Um, I don't care how tall or short they are, what sort of psychiatric disability they may or may not have. And I'm not saying throw these people into the, the, the waste bin of, um, of the workforce. No, I'm not saying that at all. And in Davos, there's going to be a lot of conversations. I didn't get invited, but I've read about the high and mighty and what they're thinking about top of uh, center of conversation, the, um, the environmental the environmentally, socially governance, the ESG. There, there's a big belief that this is the first year that some of the corporate overlords will begin talking about the how much harder it is to be profitable when you incorporate some of these ESG and DEI. We're using acronyms here. Equity, inclusion, uh, DEI, diversity, equity. It's not Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. Diversity, equity, and inclusion and the ESG is environmentally social governance. Um, the corporate, oh, I mean, the whole mindset has been to coordinate um, some of these private companies and their mindsets uh, with the public sector to get these, I, I'm, I'm reading here, shared set of social objectives. And, and, and once again, I'm okay with the shared set of social objectives. Let's be civil. Let's be decent. Let's be kind and respectful. Okay. I mean, it's pretty sad we need the public sector to coordinate with the private sector to get us to do that, but that's not what they're after, guys. They're not after that. They're trying to decide what the workforce of company X, Y, or Z needs to be. And if the country has this many dwarfs, then Boeing needs to hire that many. If the company has, excuse me, if the country has this many um, people with psychiatric disabilities, then Boeing needs to hire that many people with psychiatric disabilities. And I do believe there is a place in the workforce for dwarfs wrestling. I do believe there's a place in the workforce for people who are missing extremities. I mean, I doubt somebody with no hands is going to be good at counting money. Right? But, I mean, there's a lot of other things they can do. Why are you laughing, Josh? I mean, I'm not trying to be crude or disrespectful. I'm just trying to highlight how stupid this is. How no, ridiculous it is! Some of these objectives and guidelines, because um, once again, when I when when the pilot says put your seatbelt on, and I do, and we begin taxing down the runway, the last thing I'm thinking about is how many short people worked on this plane, or how many people with psychiatric struggles worked on this plane. I want smart, competent, diligent engineers and welders and fabricators and sheet metal workers. I mean, I want people that know what they're doing to build that plane, and I don't care how much coordination there's been with that private company, Boeing, and and, and the public sector, the government in this case, and, and what set of um, shared social objectives we're trying to get to. I want to land where it says on the ticket. If everybody that built that plane is 6'5 and smart, I like my chances. If they're less than five feet and dumb, I probably won't off, especially if it's a dreamliner. You know what, though, guys? Good news. I mean, it's bad news, but good news. 
the Dreamliner is made in um in Charleston. The the 737 Max is made in Washington. Because I just knew that the unions were going to argue we make the good planes in our union plants in Washington and Oregon. They make the bad planes in the non-union right-to-work state of South Carolina. So far, fingers crossed. You ready? The plane made with union workers is having a lot more issues than the plane made with non-union workers in good old South Carolina. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, we're talking about the, the, the corporate overlords and the political elites and establishment. It's easy to kind of generalize some of these um, categories that influence all of our lives. The most interesting dynamic, and I went back and looked at 16, some of the exit polling, so, some uh, a little bit of interest polling, majority exit polling. Donald Trump is the most unique political figure and, and in a lot of ways. I mean, we talked earlier about if Trump wins again, is it the craziest political story in American history? I mean, we had duels in the early days. Andrew Jackson, about half the documents he signed, had blood on them, <laughs> gunshot wounds. So, I mean, we've had some crazy, crazy times. But I think Josh said in modern American political history, I mean, if Trump wins, it's the craziest scenario of which we never imagined we'd see play out. And I give Alvin Bragg a lot of credit. I mean, I'd love to give, I'd love to give Trump credit. But Alvin Bragg probably deserves more than anybody because he was the first guy to go after Trump. And and once he went after Trump, they began making Trump this crusader, almost a, a sympathetic. It's, it's a little bit like the tragic hero in a Western movie. I mean, it's, there's a weirdness about it, and, and there's so much weirdness in the weirdness. Another weird, we're talking about church and faith and Christianity and the Judeo-Christian ethic. Trump loses country club Republicans and wins evangelical Republicans. I mean, that makes no sense. I mean, the guy that has has probably dropped the ball in his personal life as much as any Republican candidate ever, and I'm not being judgmental. I mean, I'm not. I mean, but he's lived a very complicated existence that is in contrast to to some of the church's teachings. But, But he's winning churches, and he's losing country clubs. And you would expect... Donald Trump to win country clubs yeah. and lose churches. That's just another strange dynamic. It's a very strange dynamic. I mean, my theory is that Christians want to win. I mean, Christians aren't single-issue voters. Where does he stand on the cross? I mean, that's all I want to know. Where, I don't want us to win. Hey, Trump believes this about the economy and this about taxes, this about immigration, this about uh, inflation. I don't care. I want to know where he stands on the cross. I mean, Christians aren't monolithic. Very often we try to treat them as if they were. You know how those religious people are. You know how those evangelical Christians are. Well, guess what evangelical Christians like? They like money in the bank. They like good jobs. They like to be safe. They like to know that the southern border is not being invaded by people who want to assimilate. I mean, it, it's so odd. And and but but back to Josh's point yesterday. I think the church and those who associate as churchgoers believe fundamentally that somebody's got to stop all these bad decisions we're making. I mean, what, what is the worst? I don't know, but we're not making many good decisions as a nation today. And I think Christians tend to gravitate toward a strong man. I mean, I don't have any data. That's just a hunch, an instinct. I think Christians, probably a little more than anybody, gravitate toward a strong man. We're drowning in the sea of bad decisions. Somebody's got to save us. Somebody's got to stop this nonsense. And they believe 
more than anybody else, Trump is capable of stopping the nonsense. Does that make sense? I mean, I know that's kind of a weird notion, but but everything about this election is weird. <laughs> and I think the weirder, the better if you're Donald Trump. Take a break. Back in a few. Now that Josh and I have pretty much assumed the responsibility of passing judgment on society as a whole, right, Josh? And we're very comfortable Absolutely. doing that. <laughs> we're very comfortable judging society in general. Um, I've, I've got a kind of a soapbox I want to get on. And it, it really plays into COVID. It plays into government, plays into the economy. I've got this theory, and I want to get your take on it. And maybe I'm way off track, but Rev and Josh, I want you to stick with me for a second here. Um, we know the struggles of the economy. We know that a lot of business owners, small businessmen and women, have become unbelievably frustrated by the government paying people to not go to work, incentivizing people to not go to work, and the challenges within. Um, there are, especially in the hospitality sector, in the, in the, in the services industry, where it's required of your face of your company to be kind and friendly and supportive and, and respectful. Um, young people by and large, and I'm picking on young people, Josh, because I think this is interesting. Um, I think every generation believes that they were the center of the universe when they're 18 years old. I think Rev did. I know I did. I think Josh did. I think it's human nature at about 18 or 19 years old, when you begin gaining some independence that you believe and you can't be convinced otherwise that you are the center of the universe. God built this world for you and you deserve to have the brightest lights and the most attention and you drive your parents crazy, you drive your siblings crazy, but there's a period of time there that you gain a little wisdom and you say, well, I mean, it's not all about me. I mean, there's some other things I got to consider and take into account. You take that combination, that deadly, lethal combination of human nature, 18, 19, 20 years old, the world's all about me. I don't have to do anything if I don't want to do it. I need to be first on the list. There'll be others, but I need to be first on, on the list. And the government so involving itself into the affairs of private sector. And if you're in the service industry, if you're in the hospitality business, imagine, I mean, we know the majority of wait staff. Let's use wait staff at restaurants. As an example, I think that would be the best way to illustrate this. The majority of wait staff at restaurants are young people, right? I mean, it's a startup job. It's not what you're going to do for the rest of your life, waiting tables, working in a kitchen, being a hostess at a restaurant, being a desk clerk at a hotel. But you've got to, in some way, shape, or form, understand that for that eight-hour period of time, for that shift, the world's not about you. It's about that person you're trying to make happy that person that is going to enjoy a meal in your restaurant, that person that you're serving in some way, shape, or form. And I believe that the, the, the combination of human nature and the government allowing people to make money by not working has, has become a deadly toxin to the economy in general. And if you're a small business and you're in the hospitality sector or the services industry and you're counting on young people, to kind of put their personal persuasion aside for eight hours and, and make the next eight hours not about me, but that person eating a steak, that person, person enjoying a movie, whatever, whatever that experience is. And I, I read so much about customer service. And it is, I mean, the, the, the Facebook, the Twitter, the comments on 
on some of the stories I run, nobody believes they're getting good service. Rev and I were having a discussion early this morning about a situation we're aware of, and we wonder if we couldn't do a better job at servicing, at taking care of customers. Um, and I, I just think we've got a world, I think we've got an economy that depends, almost requires, Rev, younger people to for eight hours not be center of the universe and accept it and make you the consumer, you the customer, the center of that universe, and they don't have the ability. They're not able to do What do you mean? What do you mean I'm not the center of the universe for the next eight hours? These people that come to this restaurant are. These people that come to this movie theater are. These people that expect this level of service are. No, no, I'm the center of the universe. I think it's fine if you're building truck beds. Because if you're building truck beds, you're not trying to make somebody happy. You're trying to make somebody satisfied, right? I mean, that welder, that, that 22-year-old welder can believe he's the center of the universe and nobody ever knows it. But all of a sudden, if I've got to wait on a table full of, you know, um, people who you know, frequent my restaurant and I'm depending on that 19-year-old college kid to go out and be nice and make over these four people at a six people or eight people or whatever at a restaurant, and I don't think they have the capacity. And not only are they are they being subjected to I'm the center of the universe syndrome, it's being in, reinforced by the government. Say, not only do you deserve to be the center of the universe, you deserve to be paid and not have to go to work and somebody tell you you're not the center of the universe. And businesses are dying. Businesses are dying. Customer service sucks. And if you are angry at the business owner, please understand what the business owner is dealing with. Remember the speech I told you I gave in Greenville? And, and it was about EBITDA and, and ROI and NOI and, you know, the financing of the deal. And I left there mm-hmm. and told Haley, hey, man, ain't you proud of me? I mean, didn't I bring the house down? Robert said, nobody understood what you were talking about. I said, what do you mean? Robert, I talked about the Fed. I talked about quantitative easing. I talked about quantitative tightening. I mean, I'm man, I mean, I'm a country boy, but I know they're impressed with my knowledge of the economy. Robert said, it was a room full of people who don't own businesses. They have no understanding of that world. They don't care about that world. They know that world exists, but they don't live in that world. How many Americans know what EBITDA is, know what quantitative easing is? And, and I, I just, when, when I read things on social media, just blasting businesses, I mean, just blasting business after business after business, I wonder how many of those blasts come from people who run businesses or have ever tried to run businesses. Because I'm telling you, my father was as good a businessman as I've ever known in my life. I'm not sure my dad would go in business for himself today. I mean, if my dad looked at the labor pool, looked at the state of affairs and talked about regulation and government and, you know, so, so I'm going to pay a guy $15 an hour to work and the government's going to pay him $18 an hour not to go to work. And I believe I'm going to get the best and brightest. Yeah, I may go to work for somebody else. I don't know that I'd want that challenge. You're nodding your head. I mean, you, you kind of understand what I'm saying, Reb. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's people on social media blasting small business men and women at the lack of service and the quality of service and, you know, my food sucked, my service sucked, my room, was time. Not, my room wasn't clean. I can't believe, you know, the, the, the pest control guy came and did such a sorry job. It's chronic in society today. It is an epidemic. 
I mean, it's an absolute epidemic. We were heading that way. Any, any, I mean, we, we tax productivity, excuse me. Yeah. We tax productivity reward, um, non-productive people more than we should in this imbalanced economy. But I think when COVID hit and we shut all these businesses down and we gave people money to not go to work and then we created this, this, this other layer of entitlement. I mean, there's already entitlement inbred in the system anyway, and we created even more entitlement. And I just think we have done irreparable and generational damage to our economy that depends on workers who give a rat's ass, whether they do you a good job or not. I tell my three kids over and over and over again, there has never been a better time to be a good worker. There has never been a better time to climb the ladder of, you know, economic success than now. Because most people don't want to work hard. Most people don't want to be on time. Most people don't want to, you know, tuck their shirt in or, or do whatever it takes to, to give good service. And I do believe, Rev, I mean, we're talking about in the macro. You know, you go to a restaurant, the food isn't as good, the service isn't anywhere near as good, and you're frustrated and aggravated. And, and you have a right to be. I mean, there's an expectation that you deserve to have met. What I'm saying is I wish people who don't run businesses understood the barriers to quality service, the barriers to, 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 to a good product are today. And the government created the majority of these. And where do we go from here? I don't have any idea. I mean, I honestly don't have any idea. And I'm not asking to be accepting of inferior quality. I'm not asking to um, not expect as much. Yeah, because from the consumer standpoint, I mean, things cost so much now, so you you really feel it if you want to splurge, we'll say, a lot for a lot of people, it's a splurge to go out to eat, right? Um, and if you get bad service, it's a, it's a disappointment to say the least. Um, but you don't see the other side. And if your first reaction is to go blast publicly on social media or one of these rating sites, your experience, because it was negative, you know, what does that say? Well, I mean, I, and I get it. I mean, you're frustrated, you're angry, you're aggravated, you paid more than you should have, and you did. I mean, you did pay right. more than you should have. But but that's not the business owner's fault. I mean, that's the government and quantitative easing and fiat currency and inflation. I mean, that's not the business owner's fault. I got a buddy in the business, and you know, when I say that, people know I'm, some people know I'm talking about, but he, he had a new menu one day. Not long ago, he flipped the menu to me. Look at that menu. I said, well, you took my favorite dish, y'all, but I mean, I get it. You don't like me much anyway. <laughs> he said, no, look at the prices. And I looked, and I said, mm, okay. He said, I ought to be ashamed of myself that I'm having to charge that much for my food, but I don't have any choice. The government takes half of your money, and they devalue the other half. I mean, just, just imagine where we are today, guys. And I think it goes back, and that's why I get so unbelievably passionate about COVID. It reorganized, it reoriented our society in a way that I'm not sure I'll live long enough to see normalcy restored. And I turned the football game on, the Cowboys and Packers, um, and they're talking about, if you think you've not had enough boosters, here's another. I mean, here's another brought to you by, by Pfizer. And I'm convinced that Pfizer has done enough research to say, you know, those, those men that like football, that's probably the holdouts. I mean, that's probably the ones that are more resistant to the government mandates and the government, you know, encouragement of going to get the shot. So, so they spend a lot of their money budgeting toward the unvaccinated. I mean, the, you know, the holdouts, the last of the Mohicans, so to speak. And now let's go get those, those guys. And then I hear, and this is when I get table pounding angry. And then I hear his supremacy, Dr. Fauci, 
sit in a transcribed hearing, the guy that knew everything. I mean, the guy that knew, don't you dare doubt me. I'm science. I mean, you don't know what you're talking You're not an epidemiologist. You're not a virologist. Don't you dare doubt me. I know what I'm talking about, and I'm not a tyrant. I'm a scientist. I understand some of the nuts and kooks on the right say I'm a tyrant. I'm not a tyrant. I'm a scientist. And the science says, I mean, we're going to let the science guide us through this process together, and humanity will be saved, and I will have a statue. It'll be somewhat dwarf-like, but I'll have a statue built for me one day. And he gets deposed, basically, gives a transcribed hearing under oath, and he says over 100 times, I can't recall or I don't remember. Two things essentially are important here. When someone asked about the six-foot, you know, um, keep your distance. Social distancing. Social distancing. And they kind of dug in a little bit. I mean, he gave some Johns Hopkins answer to begin with. But as they persisted, you know what he basically said? We made it up. I mean, it could have been two, could have been three, could have been four, could have been five. We made it up. What do do you mean you made it up? Well, I mean, we made it up. There's no science behind that. I went to Johns Hopkins, but there's no science behind social distancing. There's no science behind six feet being the arbitrary number that we came up with. And then they asked him about um, uh, the, the, the function. What am I trying to say here? The funding of the Wuhan Virology Lab. Some of the um, uh, there there's chain. Uh, help me here, somebody help me. Um, the, You're the talking about the, the, the sort of research they do, uh, the clinical research they do in the virology labs that lead to creating more dangerous viruses, gain of function. I mean, can we make this virus more more dangerous? Can we do it in a controlled environment? That way, we'll know how to create a vaccine in case something like that gain, it does gain another function. I mean, that's kind of the the terminology behind it. And he basically said, um, yeah, I did get involved in the early end of censoring opinions that believed we should consider a lab leak. I mean, that's where he he may have some legal trouble here because he's lied about gain of function funding. I mean, he was in control of all the grants. We know some of the NIH grants went to the Wuhan Virology Lab. And, and you know, Fauci, I mean, remember some of the emails we saw when he said, you know, stop that. I mean, get Malone off Twitter. Get get some of these opinions off Facebook. Uh, don't don't allow that person to come on CNN because they're talking about lab leak. They're talking about, uh, you know, uh, the, the the funding on chain of um, chain of function or uh, function, gain of function. I think I'm right here. Yeah, yeah gain, gain of function. Gain of That's function right. research and testing. And um, I mean, that's why I just think about, and I know it, it's, it's, it's dots that are a long way apart, but I think about Fauci and I think about those business owners and I think we should put Fauci in a Duncan booth, but instead of water, put like nitroglycerin and let every small business owner in America have a chance to dunk the, um, the man formerly known as science. I mean, we had an artist formerly known as Prince. This is a man formerly known as, as science who more than a hundred times said under oath, I can't remember. I can't recall. And businesses out there are struggling in ways you can imagine to convince people that this job is worth doing and worth doing right. Take a break back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. We're kind of rambling about on a Wednesday yeah. morning. Uh, we'll get back to the New Hampshire primary, which is, Tuesday, we'll talk about Trump and Haley and, and DeSantis. 
We'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. I mean, the phones are open, 843-661-0937 is our number. And actually, what comes after New Hampshire? South Carolina. South Carolina. It'll be interesting to see how how things look after New Hampshire and what that means for South Carolina. It's It's going to be extremely close in New Hampshire. Trump wins South Carolina by somewhere more than 20 points. And it's over. Okay. I mean, it's over then. DeSantis will probably get out after New Hampshire. Trump and Haley will come to South Carolina. Trump will beat her at least 60-40, maybe worse than that. I don't know. And then it's just like, where, where do you go from there? Really? I mean, the, the, the person that the establishment chose to take on Donald Trump gets beat in her home state by an excess of 20 points. I mean, where do you go from there? By the way, breaking news, I think Asa Hutchinson did suspend his campaign yesterday. I had a better chance of getting elected president than Asa Hutchinson. <laughs> in case and you I'm, didn't know. I'm not, I'm not even right. In case you wondered if he was still in or not. Uh, so we're talking about Fauci and, I guess, trying to do a little postmortem on uh, on COVID and our, I guess, our government's reaction to COVID. Um, so what do you think the biggest mistake was? I mean, there's, there's a lot of we things. We made the biggest mistake. Okay. Doing what we were told. <laughs> All right. We made the biggest mistake, conditioned to conformity. That was the test. Have we conditioned the American public to conform, and let's see if they'll stand six foot apart of one another. Let's see if they'll wear these silly masks. We don't know if they work or not, but let's see if they'll wear these silly masks. Let's see if we can convince them to take an experimental drug. Yeah, let's do that. But that, to me, culturally and societally, that's the biggest issue at hand, the the uh, the regime of I mean, the federal government basically said to business owners shut your business down what do you mean shut my bit shut it down why because we said so well, what are you basing that on well i mean now we we know that they weren't basing it on much of much of anything at all but but i think culturally rev that's the story that that we had been over a period of time probably a couple of generations uh that they they kind of um take a little bit of liberty away, a little bit of freedom away, a little bit of liberty away, a little bit of freedom away. Government gets a little more punitive and a little more punitive and a little more punitive. And next thing you know, people will stand where you tell them. They'll shut their, they'll willingly shut their businesses down for fear of some government agency coming in and, you know, putting you in jail or putting the locks on your doors forever. I mean, it was a little Gestapo like, to be honest with you. But, but the other that, that I think, I mean, that's the cultural part of this. That's the human relationship we have with the federal, with the big bad federal government. I don't want any trouble with the federal government, man. I mean, if your hairdresser can't cut hair, what do you mean? That's how I make a living. Figure it out. I mean, we'll send you some money here down the road. Speaking of the money, that's where the other side came in. Because the government became this totalitarian regime and mandated and dictated of us to do X, Y, or Z, you can't open the business. You can't go to the movie. You can't get on an airplane. You can't do all these things that free societies do. Because we think, we think that the vaccine is this effective and the virus is this deadly. Now, Sweden didn't do much of that. Go back and look at some of the death per million in Sweden. Much better than death per million in South Carolina. We know we made a lot of mistakes. But the government is now convinced that at the next turn, when they need to exert enormous control over the population, the majority, not all of us, but the majority will do what they're told. The majority will shut their business down. The majority will take an experimental vaccine. The majority will stop cutting hair. The majority will do X, Y, or Z. Um, I mean, I, I remember, I don't want to get him in trouble, 
but you know, they closed down the fitness centers and you know, my buddy who I trained with said, Hey man, I mean, I'm a trainer. That's how I get paid. I don't have a side job. I'm not a trust fund baby. I need to work. And I said, well, what do you want to do? Let's work out in my yard. And we did. Now we probably violated some local law by doing that. I mean, exercising in the yard. I mean, two of you gathered, that's forbidden. I mean, did you stay six feet apart? I mean, it was weird and wild and made me so angry. The other thing we did was spend about $7 trillion we didn't have in the name of keeping people whole. Well, you know, we told these people they couldn't go to work and we told these people they couldn't run their business and there's going to be some economic consequence to that and they're not going to be able to pay taxes and the tax receipts will decline and we can't fund these wonderful programs that we've committed to. So let's just out of thin air create $7 trillion. Now you and I have agreed that a trillion is a supernatural number. Let's create seven of those supernatural numbers and just infuse them into the economy and see kind of where it goes from there. And you got the CARES Act 1, the CARES Act 2, the American Rescue Plan 1, the American Rescue Plan 2, the Inflation Reduction Act. So you've got people not as productive, not earning as much money, but you subsidize their income with money you don't have. You just printed up the money, made it up out of thin air. Josh doesn't have the money he normally has because he's not working as much. But the government said, here, Josh, take this. Here, take this. And you inflated to the tune of $7 trillion. And all of a sudden, guess what? Yoda said transitory. I never bought that. I mean, nobody believed. Nobody with half a brain. And maybe Yoda doesn't have half a brain. Uh, but, but nobody believed that inflation was transitory. $7 trillion of new liquidity injected, infused into the economy. And inflation is going to be transitory? Really? So, Rev, what we did... We, 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 we put $7 trillion of liquidity into the economy, led to rampant inflation, inflation like nobody listening to my voice has ever seen in their life. Rampant inflation, 12% annually, excuse me, 12% monthly inflation at certain times. It's slowed down. It's not, we're not in a deflation. We're in disinflation. And for those that aren't schooled in economics as I am, disinflation means inflation is still existing. It's just rising at a much slower level or much slower pace. Deflation means prices are actually going down. We're not having much deflation. We're having a good bit of disinflation. But on the deflation side, excuse me, on the economy, you've got, you've got all of a sudden, we're going to take the liquidity out of the economy. We're going to quantitative tighten for a while. So the consumer who had a bump, didn't deserve it, didn't earn it, but he got it because she told him he couldn't go to work. She couldn't go to work. You know, you made them whole with liquidity created out of thin air, created rampant inflation. You take the money, you begin taking the money out of the economy, and the inflation becomes more expensive. I can afford, I can afford that inflation if you spend send me eight grand. You know, if I'm a family of four and I get all these tax credits and I feel like this form of the federal government says, we don't have the money, but we feel like we owe you eight grand. I mean, I can deal with the inflation. But all of a sudden, I don't have the eight grand, and a hamburger still costs X, and a trip to the beach still costs X, and and that's why we're seeing delinquencies on credit cards. That's why we're seeing people tap into 401ks, and that's why the second half, maybe second quarter, for sure the third quarter, we're going to have economic carnage. There's going to be a tremendous slowdown in our economy at some point in time this year. I don't know when, but at some point in time this year, the inflationary forces, and the reducing of liquidity, it's inevitable. There is no way around that. 
And I don't know when, where, and how, but we are headed to an economic slowdown of significant consequence. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Daphne and Dylan, good morning. Good morning, guys. Uh, I was listening to your COVID-type thing, um, and I do understand that it was all about control. And the fact I'm with Breeze, all of it is intentional. Because, in fact, NIH, CDC, all those autocrats got very, very rich from that particular let out the virus thing. Uh, also, in the World Economic Forum, they will tell you what their intentions are if you listen. There's an audio of Klaus Strong speaking to one of his cohorts at one of those uh, meetings where he said, COVID is the blueprint, and we can now use that as an emergency climate catastrophe. So we are living under tyranny, only we don't realize it yet, because when they hire 50,000 more federal employees in one in one uh, quarter and then claim the, uh, the unemployment rate has gone down, we know that all those people that are in Washington now are living uh, and sold their souls for extra money and to become millionaires. So when our country fails, it is from greed and ignorance. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Well, I mean, if you think about it, if you're a Democrat, and once again, you're more sympathetic to government being in charge, all of America are never going to be angry about the government being in charge. I mean, you've got this philosophical divide. It's historically been the debate between liberal and conservative. Conservatives are highly skeptical of government being in charge. Democrats are historically sympathetic to government being in charge. I believe that government has lost the moral authority. I believe the political establishment, both Democrat and Republican, have lost its credibility. I believe that's why chaos will ensue. I don't think you can stop this. I mean, I understand how hard some of the establishment-oriented Republicans and Democrats are trying. I, under, I understand that. It's a little bit like Roger said yesterday. I mean, there is no way. There is no way Donald Trump will get elected president again. Well, what do you mean there's no way? Well, I mean, you know what I mean. I can't say it. I can't visual. I don't know what they'll do, but they're going to stop him in some way, shape, or form because there's too much at risk. What's at risk? Control. Control power equals money. And then, you know, now would be about a good time. Money's the answer. Now, what's the question? Don't follow money some of the time, most of the time, but rather all of the time. And they built this enormous machine. I mean, I know I say this every single week, but, but it's worth repeating. They built this enormous machine of power, influence, and money. And the enormous machine requires them with certain people in certain places. And Trump is an oddball. He's a misfit. Uh, he's been ushered in by this populist nationalist movement that believes government is corrupt. The, the, the most interesting question to me, and I don't know where you poll this, how many Democrats believe the federal government is corrupt beyond repair? Because you've got this, this kind of um, DNA. It's something about you. 
we're, we're, none of us are identical. We all have these different opinions, different beliefs, different per, perceptions. I mean, it's easy for me to be skeptical of government because I don't like government. I don't want it in charge of more and more. But if you're philosophically liberal and you believe government needs to be in charge and society's probably better off in the long run when man is not left to his own volition, how many of you believe that government's corrupt beyond repair? And I'm talking about the federal government. That's the most interesting data point that I'd be interested in. Most conservatives are naturally skeptical of government. So if government gives them any reason at all, Reb, to believe it's corrupt, you know what we do? We believe it. I mean, we believe it full-fledged with every fiber of my body. But, but to a liberal Democrat who is more sympathetic, you're going to have a harder time convincing them that these people are not to be trusted. They're not in the business of government. They're not in the business of doing right by you, me, or anybody else. They're in the business of power, influence, and money. Let's go to the phone. Billy and Florence, good morning. You're on. Hey, hey good morning, guys. Great show as always. Uh, getting back to Joe Fauci, uh, you know, at the time uh, he was uh, employed, he was like the highest paid government official at the time. But I, th- I think he's retired now. But if he doesn't want to answer the questions, uh, I think we need to cut his pension. Um, you know, we, we need we, we need to cut that out and and tell him, hey, if you don't want to answer these questions, you know, we're gonna we're gonna cut into your uh, your 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 pension plan. But uh, I wanted to ask you your take on this uh, Georgia thing with the uh, the Georgia prosecutor and the uh, the DA and the uh, the, the love effect uh, that's going on there. Uh, wh- what's your take on that? Where's uh, uh, Trump's um, would, would that be appealed, or, or what do you t- your take on all that? And uh, I'll take it off the air. Thanks, guys. I want to be careful giving an opinion because I don't know the, the, the legalities of an extramarital affair between someone who is in charge of an investigation um, and someone who is hired to be a part of that investigation, and then we find out that they may have an affair. They may be partners. I mean, I, I don't know how that plays out. Um it appears Fannie may have been named right. Um, I'll just say it. I'll just say it and leave it there. But um, but you got once again. I know how it looks. The perception is one thing, but what is the legal stance when it comes to someone investigating a president or a former president to be in charge of an investigation and bring in someone? I mean, I don't think it's illegal to bring in somebody unqualified. I don't think it's illegal to bring in somebody you're sleeping with. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if you can bring in somebody not qualified. I don't know if you can bring in somebody you're not, or you somebody you're sleeping with. Um, I mean, she's trying to make it about race. She's trying to say, you know, the 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 black person I hired is the one they're being most critical of, and I just ask, are you sleeping with him and the other, you know, the, the whites? I, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it, it's a bad look, but I don't know the legal smell test. Maybe we've got a lawyer listening out there. Probably not. Um, I don't tend to be real popular with it. But anyway, m- maybe there's somebody out there that could give a legal opinion. And, and I would imagine Trump will appeal. I mean, it, there's an appearance of malfeasance. I mean, is that fair? I mean, if, if, if Trump is being charged with a crime and the lady who's prosecuting Trump on that potential criminality hires somebody who has no experience whatsoever in that form of a prosecution and their bedfellows, Ah, can Trump say, wow, you're talking about, I mean, he's going to say that, you know, Trump's going after that, the appearance of injustice, but technically is it injustice? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. 
I'm kind of glad it happened because it does lead more credibility to the argument of, you know, there's a set of rules for this guy, but no rules for all the others. As long as you're never Trump, anti-Trump going after Trump, you've got nothing to worry about in the federal government. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Go to the phone. Ben in Pauly's Island. Hello, Ben. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. Love the show. A um, couple points I wanted to make. One about the uh, COVID mess and what I think is missing in some of the conversation is not that everybody was a sheep, but I think that a lot of people just didn't have the guts to do what they wanted to do. Uh, let's take Henry McMaster uh, closing down our beaches, our beaches where fresh air is coming in off the ocean. But he did it because he didn't want to be the only one leaving his beaches open because there was a liability there. If he closed them, we might call might think that was a foolish decision, but he was no different than anybody else. And so I think it was nobody wanted to be the one that stood outside, just like nobody wanted to be that one doctor um, that prescribed hydroxychloroquine or iver- ivermectin because that was outside the norm. And there was liability there. Uh, and I just thought we need to have leaders with, with more guts. But uh, on a second note, too, um, back to uh, the primaries, um, here's a, a question that I have for you. So, so everybody's saying to Sanders and Haley ought to go ahead and get out of the race because Trump's going to be the nominee. And the polls tell us that, and I firmly believe that, and I think they ought to stay in till at least Super Tuesday. But why do we believe the polls that Trump's going to be the nominee, but then yet we're going to go ahead and push forward with Trump? And the polls also tell us he's the one that's going to have the toughest time beating Biden. When all the polls say Haley or DeSantis would do better against Biden than Trump. So uh, my thoughts, my question. Thank you, sir. Yeah, very well thought of. I mean, in the first example, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. I mean, I understand not bucking the government. I mean, that's kind of plays into my narrative that the government had become so powerful, so controlling. Republicans were afraid. I mean, if the government says do this, I don't want to get crossed up with the government. I mean, nobody does. What happens when you fight authority? But that's part of the narrative, Rev. That, that's the missing well, you lose. I mean, you know that. Authority and I know always that. wins, according but, to but the that, song. But conceptually, and, and, I, and I'll get to the, um, to the primary here in a second, but conceptually, Shouldn't the government be afraid of the will of the people? I mean, isn't the Constitution a celebration of the superiority the will of the people have over the government? I mean, that that's what our, our, you know, we talk a lot about the founders weren't a monolith. They weren't. I mean, you had a lot of different opinions on religion, on culture, on politics. I mean, they were very diverse in their political beliefs and in their spirituality or not. And in their, but the one thing they were all pretty consistent of is freedom and liberty. I mean, Hamilton and Jefferson didn't agree on a damn thing but that. I mean, they, they were not for, you know, um, government telling everybody what to do, when to do, how to do, and where to do. I mean, we can argue central banks and Jeffersonian and Hamilton, but, but at the end of the day, they believed that the construction of a constitution should place as a priority the will of its people, the celebration of liberties and freedoms not being afraid of government, not being held accountable to government in the weird and most draconian ways. And that's what we've turned into. I mean, we've turned into a, a, a group of people, 
where where we make calculuses and decisions that are in our best interest based on what does the government think of this decision I'm about to make? What does the government think of that business decision, a personal decision? And that's just not fundamentally the intent of our Constitution. That was what made us unique. And I'm afraid we're losing a lot of that. I'll, I'll talk to the primary on the other side. 843-661-0937, our number last hour on this Wednesday morning. Got some calls here. I'll get back to the primary in just a second. But this is a show about our callers, and they direct our paths. Let's go to the phone. Lou in Hartsville. Good morning, Lou. Hello there, fellas. I'm a little bit starstruck right now, so bear with me. <laughs> Bless your heart. <laughs> I own a I own a gym in Florida and have owned it for 44 years. They came in my gym and closed me down for 10 weeks and told my guy that was running my business that if I didn't keep it closed, they were going to put me in jail. He kept it open. They came back the second time and threatened him again, so he closed it to comply with the COVID. And uh, we put a mop and a bucket in there and a broom in there, and anybody that wanted to come in there for a couch and act like they were cleaning the place up. That's how we got by. We moved some equipment to a double-car garage and kept on doing what we were doing. We are the people. You are not going to stop us, okay? We do not trust this government. Ten weeks I did not get a paycheck. Ten weeks they closed my business down. Rent kept coming. Electric kept coming. Phone kept coming. We have never recovered from it. I am in a dump truck right now driving to pay my bills because Bidenomics has put me to work, okay? And that's what I got to say about trusting the government. I'm waiting for the war to break out, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Keep digging, brother. Drive that truck. Do what you got to do to keep your head above water. Um, and then that, that, that would be, that's my central argument. And, and this is my campaign speech. I mean, if I were going to run for office, it would begin with this. This country was not founded by fear. Nervous and afraid people didn't make America great. People doing what they were told isn't the, the essence of America. This is an experiment in courage, an experiment in challenging the status quo. The British Empire was the strongest army on this planet, and a bunch of ragtags whooped its ass because they had a fundamental belief in the inalienable rights of humanity that I don't have to listen to a monarch or dictator or, or some government that, that appointed themselves. And, and, and that's who we are. That's the essence of America. And we should celebrate the cowboys and renegades and outlaws. We shouldn't put them in prison. We shouldn't try to condition them to conform. And, and that, that is my frustration, guys, that we don't have enough renegades, cowboys, and outlaws. We don't have enough people who tell the government, tend to your business and I'll tend to mine. I understand why we don't. I mean, the government has an abusive right of power. I mean, they have a punitive reputation now. They will come after you if you don't do what you're told. They will make examples of you if you don't obligate yourself to that conditioning of conformity. And that's not what made America great. I mean, I've, I've said this before. This is the weirdest way to, we got more kids and, well, I mean, males. Let, let's go down this road. Let's talk about masculinity, toxic masculinity. I mean, that's something 
that academia and government have. Hey, you better watch these, uh, the, the, these toxic, you know, how toxic masculinity is. I mean, it's dangerous. It's a, uh, it's almost an epidemic. No toxic masculinity is how you win wars. Toxic masculinity is how you build businesses. Toxic masculinity is how you conquer evil. It, toxic masculinity can be dangerous. There is no doubt about that. But masculinity is essential to the free enterprise and, and the, 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 the celebration of liberty and freedom that, that Americans have celebrated up until, I don't know when, I mean, when did this begin? The New Deal, I guess, would have been, you know, when government kind of got entangled in and, and we got real dependent on government. I mean, these programs and, you know, well, I mean, people falling through the cracks. We got to make sure people don't fall through the cracks. Got to have these safety nets in place. And I'm, to some degree, I'm receptive of that. And I'm understanding. I'm not real sympathetic to it, but I'll accept that. I mean, the, 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 the anarchist liberal or libertarian in me says no. I mean, let, let us figure it out ourselves. But I understand that in a civil and orderly society, government has some functioning role. Josh drives on this side of the road. I drive on that side of the road. Josh doesn't have a right to walk up to me just for the, the giggle and kicks, punch me in the mouth. I mean, you know, there's, there's got to be some law and order in society. But, 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 guys, we're losing that. We're losing the essence of masculinity. And masculinity is inbred in the, the cowboy and the, the renegade and the outlaw. And government has crept closer and closer and closer and closer into the affairs of, of those sorts of, of experiments that I think are essential to our, to our existence, to our greatness. And I do believe that COVID was all about control and power. And was there a virus? Of course there was. Was there a pandemic? Absolutely there was. What did Sweden do? I mean, Sweden doesn't profess to be the greatest experiment human freedom man has ever known. I mean, Sweden's a bit squishy on some of that, to be honest with you. But you know what Sweden did? They said, hey, we're going to defer to herd immunity. We're going to try and protect our old and vulnerable, but we're going to run our society the best we know how. We're not going to order people to stay home. We're not going to order people to stay six feet apart. We're not going to put school kids in a plastic bubble and hope they learn. We're not going to tell kids to stay home and lock yourself in the room and go on that computer with online learning. I mean, the absurdity of what we did, and I'm telling you guys, if we had tried that 100 years ago, they would have failed. Government would have failed. There was enough freedom, liberty-loving masculinity in American culture and society that government would have said, hey, we better pump the brakes, man. I mean, these people aren't going to do what we tell them to do just because we're big, bad government. But over several generations, we've ended up in a place where the majority of Americans believe that it's in their best interest to do what government says. And government, that's fine, guys, if government is genuinely sincere about not having too much power, not having too much authority, not confiscating too much of our money. When government has the moral authority and the average American believes that government, by and large, is going to do the right and just thing, okay, but let's work together to get to a better place. But the majority of Americans today don't believe government does that. They believe government is corrupted and controlled and somewhat diabolical. They're sure it's punitive. I mean, they know it's punitive. They deal with it every day. Disproportional punishment. I mean, look at Trump. I mean, who has Trump in the crosshairs? The government. I mean, our own government is after Donald Trump. Well, I mean, he mishandled classified information. He may have obstructed justice. 
Name a president since Reagan that hasn't. I mean, really? You think Trump, you think Trump is a threat to democracy and the bureaucrats having all the control and power and authority and money is not? In one corner, you got Donald Trump. The media have labeled him a threat to democracy, and some of you believe that. In the other corners, all the money and all the power and all the influence, but they're in it for the good. But I mean, they're trying to maintain order and dignity and virtue in society. Okay, you'll get exactly what you deserve if you fall for that. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning. Yeah, it's kind of sad we've gone from the business of America's business, and now we live in, I guess, the business of America's government and the dependence and fear of government. And I'll talk about this New Hampshire primary. I know he was trying to get to that. Uh, here's a good trivia question for you. In 2016, Trump won. He had 35% of the vote. Who finished second in 2016 New Hampshire primary? Marco Rubio, maybe. Okay. You're close. Okay. Now, listen to this now. John Kasich. Okay. John Kasich had 15% of the vote. Uh, Ted Cruz, 12%. Jeb Bush, 11%. Marco Rubio, 10%. Chris Christie, 7%. Well, if you add all that up, that comes out to be 55%. And you have to wonder, where do those type candidates fit into the Nikki and DeSantis there? Uh, I would think that Nikki would be like John Kasich, Somebody that voted for Kasich would go vote for Nikki. Am I correct on that? Do you think so? Or? Yeah, sure. Okay. How about uh, Ted Cruz? That might be a little bit more DeSantis. I'm not sure. I would agree to that. Okay. Jeff Bush, obviously Nikki. Uh, Rubio, Nikki. Chris Christie, Nikki. So you have to wonder if the people that they had a chance to see Trump in action. And so and I would hope they would think that he did a pretty good job. Uh, I know January 6th is the blemish on it, but see how that goes into it uh, if, with the mix. Uh, but still, it, it's, you know, if it, we have to see how much DeSantis takes away from Nikki. I don't blame Nikki for, for going after New Hampshire. And here's one thing. If you look at the timetable, the next, uh, I guess, contest is in Nevada on February 8th. I don't even think Nikki's on the ballot there, Ken. You may want to fact check me there. I, I looked at the the caucus in Nevada. I don't think she's on the ballot. So basically, she's going to see what she does January 23rd. And this South Carolina primary is February 24th. So I imagine Nikki's going to be camped out here in uh, South Carolina for a whole month. And I'm sure she's going to be here in Florence and just about everywhere you can imagine. And I hear that you guys, she got an ad on your station, so I'm sure she's going to be a little advertised. But we'll see how this thing works out. But she does have the establishment, and I'll say this. Um, there's not many Baptists in New Hampshire. So that whole concept of the evangelical Christians and this and that, it's not going to be there. So this is going to be interesting, but she's got, if you look at this, Timetable, I'll leave you this, in January 23rd. She's not even on the ballot in Nevada, so she's going to come and camp out here in South Carolina. Y'all have a good day, my man. I mean, I, the way I look at this, and this is somewhat analytical, Robert and I have talked a good bit about this. I think New Hampshire is the only state that Nikki gets to 40. I mean, I think she can get to 42 or 3 in New Hampshire. It's an open primary. There are going to be a lot of Democrats vote. Um, I mean, I think Nikki probably in, in Iowa got 
I mean, I think 19% of the total vote. She probably got 10% of the Republican vote. She got about all the Democrats. I mean, there were some Democrats that hate Trump, and they kind of infiltrate some of the Republican nominating process. I mean, I'm not bothered by that because I don't think it's significant, significant enough to pick a winner or a loser. It'll skew the numbers and math a little bit. Um, there's not a big evangelical vote in New Hampshire. It's an open primary. It's the Northeast. I mean, it would be more establishment-friendly. Um, I, I just don't see anywhere else. I mean, I really don't see anywhere else that Trump has trouble. I mean, he's going to do better in some of the states than other states, and I and I accept that. But um, but if you take what Nikki said after the Iowa caucus, she finished third, but she said it's a two-person race. Nikki's better off with three in the race. I mean, Nikki's chances of, of doing well is better with DeSantis in the race. Because if DeSantis gets out, 75% of his voters go to Trump. So she is in a more advantageous position when DeSantis stays in the race. But but I just think to, to equate the Republican primary to Iowa is a mistake. I think to equate the Republican primary to New Hampshire is a mistake. I'll give an example. In the national aggregate, I'm talking about RCP, real clear politics polling averages, nationally Trump's at 62%. Nikki's at 12%. In New Hampshire, Trump's at about 42 or 3. Nikki's at about 34 or 5. I mean, it's the outlier. Now, the media will convince you that New Hampshire is where it's all won and lost. New Hampshire is one of the most odd Republican states in America. It's not going to be reflective of where the primary is. Donald Trump and Nikki Haley in a two-man race is about 70-30 across America. Trump wins. He won't win South Carolina 70-30 because it's her home state. He obviously won't won't win New Hampshire 70-30. But that's about where the Trump-Nikki race would be nationally if we had a national election tomorrow. If the Republican primary didn't do it this weird way. And they do it this way so consultants get it paid. I mean, that's why they do it. Iowa likes the bright lights, but it's about consultants. Consultants making a lot of money. Um... And, and I'll tell you what consultants are doing right now as we speak. They're, they're trying to convince Nikki Haley that you can win this thing, Nikki. You can win this thing if you can only raise another $50 million. Now, I want 25 of that million. I mean, you can win this thing, Nikki. You, there's no way that anybody not named Donald Trump wins the primary. Now, is there a way somebody not named Trump ends up the Republican nominee? Well, I mean, you got trials. You got indictments. You got potential convictions. I don't know what lies ahead. And I think anybody says, well, I'm sure that this will happen. No, you're not. Nobody's sure of anything about the next six or eight months leading up to uh, the eventual general election. I don't think there's a disqualifying conviction coming, but there could be. I mean, there could be. I don't I don't know. Um, but Donald Trump is going to get more votes than anybody in the Republican primary by a mile, by a long way. It's somewhere around 70-30. But the media will do all they can to convince voters in America, that the New Hampshire primary shows that this is a closely contested race. It is going to be a closely contested race in New Hampshire. But when Nikki comes to South Carolina and loses her home state by somewhere in excess of 20 percentage points, it's over. It's the end of it. And consultants have made all the money they can possibly make convincing DeSantis he has a chance, convincing Haley she has a chance, This is Trump's primary. This is Donald Trump's 
party. Nikki Haley is a candidate running on a platform that has a 30% constituency, maybe a little less than that. I would say the platform is probably two in 10 Republican voters, but, but the people that just don't like Trump and are ready to move on probably carry it from 20 to 30%. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Right? Yeah. Are we waiting? It, it, on, it hasn't changed. Are we waiting on Jared Halpern? Yes. Okay. Scheduled for a couple minutes. Well, let's just now. sit here and wait. You no, ready? Take yeah. a drink of my Celsius. Sing here a song. My, my watered down Celsius. Um, I'm disappointed that Josh, I mean, I thought Josh is really top shelf. But when we talked about Fanny and he didn't play the weight. He wouldn't have known. Well, I mean, he's a renaissance man. <laughs> renaissance men know, know everything. Right, Josh? I mean, I'm sure. He still doesn't know what you're well, talking I mean, he, about. He, yeah. he, he fancies himself. Fancy. Uh, and Fanny. <laughs> Fanny. He, he fancies himself as somewhat of a, um, a generational renaissance man. I couldn't hear it over the sound of your canes hitting the ground. Fair enough. Fair, fair enough. 843-661-0937. Um, we'd love to hear from you. We, I mean, this gets an odd. We try to time the breaks. We'll let you inside baseball for a second. We try to time the breaks. So when we come out of the break, the Fox News guest is on the phone, but we've not made them wait two minutes. I mean, you don't get these cats, but for a, for a few moments there. So we didn't do as good time of the break, or I didn't do. It's a good time of the break. I'll take responsibility for that. Right. Um, about a couple of minute period there. And we're, we're just filling time. Well, I mean, we're just for... we're, now we're mumbling and stumbling yeah. is what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, is there somebody on the phone? Uh, yeah, we can Let's talk to while we're waiting on Jared Halpern to call as scheduled. Mary and Florence is on the line. Hello, Mary. Yeah. Hi, guys. How are you? I'm all right. Good morning. Morning. Hey, I uh, I was listening to you that you needed somebody to call. And it was uh, Johnny on the spot for me. <laughs> I have an idea. What I would like to employ for Florence and all of South Carolina is Rush Limbaugh's Operation Chaos. Explain that. Well, I personally am not going to vote for Nikki Haley if, God forbid, she's the nominee. I mean, I'm Trump all the way. But Operation Chaos... I think we need a big turnout for Ron DeSantis so that he wins South Carolina because I don't want him to leave the race. Okay. What if so I told what, what, what? So you're not convinced that Trump is the obvious nominee? I mean, the, you, you don't know. No, it's, it's totally going to be Trump. It's totally going to be Trump. But Operation Chaos would be making sure that DeSantis stays in the race. And Nikki Haley does not. Okay, I got you. I got you. You want to send a loud message to the establishment and their darling. Exactly. Well, you look at places like Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, New Hampshire, you know, they're like 40% independent. But they can go in and change to become a Democrat today to vote in the primary. And I think that I think Nikki Haley, if she wins New Hampshire, it's not going to be a real result. It's going to be Democrats voting for Nikki Haley. Got so you. If we, can, if we can employ Operation Chaos in South Carolina and make sure that DeSantis is in second place in South Carolina, I just think it sends a big message to keep him in the race. But I'm totally believing that it's going to be Trump, and I want it to be Trump. Fair enough. But Thank you for the call. Appreciate that. Now we have Jared Halpern, I think. I didn't yeah. mean to rush the lady off, but we've got these 
these um these esteemed personalities that Fox News Radio makes available. Jared Halpern is in our nation's capital. Good morning, sir. How are you? I am well. Good morning. So two of the quirkiest states in America to begin a presidential primary <laughs> are Iowa and New Hampshire. Um Trump gets over 50% of the vote in Iowa. We don't expect him to get 50% of the vote in New Hampshire. What do we expect out of New Hampshire, Jared? Well, I think it's going to depend on turnout. And, and I think one of the reasons, by the way, that Trump got over 50% in Iowa is because turnout w- was very low. There were only about 100,000, a little bit more than 100,000 caucus goers. Now, I think that was for a couple of reasons. One, it was just bitter cold. It, we had wind chills that night of, of like 25, 30 below in parts of Iowa. There was a major a blizzard uh, the weekend before people were still digging out uh, on Monday. And I think that there was an air of inevitability that a lot of caucus goers kind of believed in. Right. And so uh, you saw uh, lower turnout. That was the conventional wisdom was that that would probably always benefit Trump, because usually that that benefits the candidate with the the strongest support amongst their supporters. Right. The most enthusiasm. Uh, New Hampshire is a little bit different, not a caucus, a primary. So you have you know, from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. to just cast your ballot. Uh, independents are allowed to participate. New Hampshire has more independents than they have Republicans or Democrats. Uh, you don't have a very competitive, you really don't have a Democratic primary at all. And so there's all of this interest on the Republican side. Um, and because of that, um, again, it's going to be a test of kind of turnout, whose supporters are, are most committed to them, uh, what's the appeal kind of more broad-based. Uh, go back and look at history not very often do you win both Iowa and New Hampshire. They are two very different states with different kind of rules. And so uh, I will be interested to see what the margins look like. Obviously, polling shows that Nikki Haley uh, is really starting to pick up ground in, in New Hampshire. Is that going to follow um, on Election Day or primary day? Uh, and if it doesn't, um, she is going to be facing a lot of pressure, I think, to start thinking about what her path looks like um it is a long way between new hampshire and south carolina uh, on the calendar three four weeks and jared um, i don't think we've ever i mean you would know better than i, I don't think we've ever had a front runner this far ahead i mean i, I go back to primaries and you're right no, I mean, there's momentum I mean, out of iowa and new hampshire yeah. but but this is just odd that we have a single candidate that much further ahead than everybody else it is Yeah, I mean, listen, it's unique to have almost two incumbents running. I mean, in many respects, the former president is running as an incumbent, right? And so that's part of that dynamic. But you're right. If he has a huge night, if Trump has another big night in New Hampshire um, and shows that he is continuing to consolidate that Republican support, it is going to be really hard for some of these other campaigns, I think, to get the financial resources that they need and public pressure is going to start to build on them of uh, maybe getting in line and, and ending this sooner rather than later and then have what would then be, I guess, the longest general election that we've had in this country uh, in quite some time as well. And half will be conducted in a courtroom. Thank you, Jared. Appreciate that time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's when the, uh, the, the eventual trials become, I guess, the centerpiece of the, of the campaign. I just don't see, I mean, I, I see where we're headed. It, it's just, it, there, there's going to be a speed bump along the way. I mean, Trump wins in Iowa, gets 51% of the vote. Some of the media says that's a great failure because half the party doesn't want to vote for him. I mean, that's absurd. I mean, if Ramaswamy's not there, he gets every one of those votes. If DeSantis isn't there, he gets two-thirds of those votes, maybe 75% of those votes. I mean, it's 70-30. I mean, that's where the party is. And you can love it, hate it, 
sign up for it, sign up against it. That's where this party is. I'm a little bit proud of some of the calculations I did a couple of years ago when I said it's two and three. I mean, two and three Republican voters ascribe to the, uh, the, 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 the campaign platform of America first. And when DeSantis gets out and it's Nikki and Trump, it's going to be establishment versus America first. And you're going to get a very clearly defined line of demarcation. It's just going to be 70-30-ish. Um, I don't know that Trump wins South Carolina about 70-30 because it's her home state. And there's some benefit of the doubt you give to a former governor of South Carolina if you're a South Carolinian. Um, I mean, I'm Trump. I mean, I don't mind telling nothing against Nikki. I'm America first. And she decided to be just the opposite of America first. The majority of elected officials in South Carolina will be uh, Republicans will be in favor of of, um, of Donald Trump. Now, now, the oddity of New Hampshire is what Jared talked about. There are more independents than Republicans. So the independents who you do need to win a presidency, and I think you got to be careful um, discounting independents. You can discount them in a, in a primary, and you say, those damn independents. I mean, deciding the Republican nominee in New Hampshire. Who wins the Republican primary in New Hampshire? Well, let me close the primary if you want that to happen. I'm not for closed primaries. I mean, I am for inviting unaffiliates to be a part of the process. It does cause you problems in certain places. It calls you grievances in certain states. But if I were a Haley or DeSantis supporter, I would want an open primary. I just think to grow a party, you've got to allow people to experience the primary. And they shouldn't have to say unequivocally, I want to be a Republican. I think you've got to let people participate in the process um, whether, whether, they're a Republican or a um, or an avowed Democrat. 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, the, the problem with the Republican primary, and this goes back to the consultant-driven or consultant-oriented model, consultants make enormous amounts of money in Iowa. They make enormous amounts of money in New Hampshire. And I think they delay the inevitable. And especially now, I mean, they're, they're causing Republicans to spend millions of dollars trying to beat other Republicans that I don't think is necessary. Now, now, if I'm a consultant, you know what I want? I want Nikki to eke out a win in New Hampshire and breathe new life of the anti-Trump movement that is unbelievably well-funded, and I can ride that gravy train for another week or two and cash a couple of other, you know, multimillion-dollar checks. I don't think people, people who've never been in the game don't understand how extravagant the pay is for some of these presidential consultants. I mean, you know, a lot of these guys have their own jets. They have shares of jets. I mean, they have homes of the Hamptons. I mean, they've never held office. And to be honest with you, some are pretty good and some aren't. I mean, there's some that aren't very good at what they do. And they've eked out or or managed a way to to become multi-multi-millionaires giving quote-unquote advice to people running for office. And Iowa and New Hampshire are examples of how to allow consultants to make as much money as possible because you got such unique examples. I mean, Iowa is not reflective of America. America at 90% white. I mean, America's not, I mean, New Hampshire is, is, is quirky. I mean, but once again, I, I think South Carolina is probably more reflective of, of the nation in general. I mean, it's not exactly the same demographic as America in general. You're not going to find a state 
I mean, I think I read somewhere, what state reflects America more than anywhere? I mean, there, there's some state out there, and it might be Ohio. I mean, Ohio might be high-income earners, low-income earners, suburban, urban, metropolitan, rural, um, backwoods, uh, you know, recreation dollars, uh, hotel rooms per, per, I mean, I think Ohio may be the best example of a microcosm of America in one um, single state. That's yeah, but, why. Yeah, but think about how that affects the business of politics. If this thing's over after New Hampshire, I mean, it affects South Carolina potentially. It affects, obviously, Super Tuesday states. Well, I mean, imagine taking New Hampshire away from its slot on the calendar. Imagine leaving Iowa and coming to South Carolina. Or imagine leaving Iowa and go Super Tuesday. And Trump wins 60-40. You know, DeSantis and Haley split up 20% of the vote. He gets 60%. They get 20 each. He gets 60. I mean, it's done. It's over. It's already changed South Carolina. If you remember 2016, we saw those candidates. You know, President Trump, candidate Trump came to to Florence, uh, made several stops in South Carolina. But we saw those candidates, all of them, all over the state and at our local venues. And you'd had a chance to go see them and hear them. You're not going to have that this time. You'll have, you know, obviously, Trump, I'm sure, will be here. Haley will be here, and they'll have surrogates here as well. But that's about it, right? I could I could go far inside baseball, breach some confidence that people have placed in me, and tell you the Mark Sanford saga and why it had more to do with presidential politics than it did Mark in Argentina. I mean, I know the story, and I know I'm right. But the, the Mark Sanford saga in Argentina was more about presidential politics than a sitting governor in a romantic fling in Argentina. Hmm. It's all about the money. It's always <laughs> about the money. Take a break. Back in a few. It's time now for the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. Call 803-720-5260. So, what are you whining about today? I was sitting at a traffic light. A car went through the traffic light going toward the high school on Stadium, and as they were in the intersection, it turned red, which I understand that happening when you're catching the tail end of a yellow light. That car no more than got all the way through the intersection when another one followed it, maybe 50 feet behind. The reason that's an issue is because of the local policeman that I was sitting beside in the traffic light who did nothing. People in Sumter run red lights, and I have to say it's because that law is not enforced. That's a whine. I mean, I don't know that I can add anything to that. That's local knowledge and a degree of frustration, which in essence is a whine. Right? I mean, that's the intent of the whiner line. What are you whining about today? I mean, isn't that what we ask? I, I don't mm-hmm. need to comment on that because um, I would never. I mean, I'll, I'll add this. I would never, never. I mean, when the light turns yellow, I mean, it's all I can do to slam on the brake. I, I'm just not the kind of person that runs <laughs> through yellow lights, much less red lights. My whine is that I am so tired of the news media calling these people migrants. They are invaders, and they need to be treated as invaders. 
Well, I mean, the, the majority of Americans are the way they said news media. The news and the media. It's one news media. I will have to come up with that. The 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 media. Uh, there you go. There, there's the new words. Or um newsdia. The newsdia. We we combine words here a lot. No, I mean I, I think the American people are beginning to understand and look at it that way. And you hardly I mean the left is not as aggressive in saying something needs to be done, but I don't hear anybody defending it. I mean, for a long time, they accused the right of being anti-immigrant. I mean, I, the, the nuts on MSNBC and CNN say that crazy stuff. I mean, I think when Trump began speaking after winning the Iowa caucus, Jake Tapper cut in and said, we don't have to listen to this anti-immigrant rhetoric. Well, I mean, I doubt if you live in Eagle Pass, Texas, or anywhere in a border state, you think it's anti-immigrant rhetoric. It's nonsense what we've allowed to happen on our southern border and I think it's an insult to Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty to believe that that's what the intent was when we allow for mass immigration into our country. We built a very diverse nation. We celebrate diversity. What's happening on our southern border is an absolute insult to the lawful and orderly way people come to our nation and assimilate. Hey, I've never heard so much foolishness and carry on about the first loser in my life. And these two, the Santos and Nikki Haley, didn't just lose. They weren't in the race. So how in the world did they even finish second place when they weren't even competitive? I, I mean, this election cycle is driving me a lot crazier than most. But um, there are some crazy people out there. All you hear this morning is the first loser the first loser, but they call him that second place. So, um, anyway, y'all have a good morning. I mean, the only, the only way you could convince someone, I mean, if I were a billionaire and a million-dollar contribution to a political action committee didn't really upset my apple cart that much, the only thing a consultant could convince me of is there may be a conviction coming down the pike that disqualifies Trump. I mean, that's a reach, but there's no other way to, 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 to justify or legitimize making a contribution. I mean, unless you, I mean, I guess vengeance, revenge, you know, makes you feel good. I'll spend my last dollar trying to stop Donald Trump from getting elected president of the United States. You damn sure will. <laughs> you sure will, because they'll take it, and he's going to be the nominee, so I get it. I mean, if there's some, we're talking about cowboys and outlaws and renegades, I guess that's the cowboy and all of us, I'm not backing down. I'm not giving up. I'll spend every penny I have to make sure he doesn't get back uh, to the White House. Okay, spend every penny you've got. Those consultants will certainly take it. But the only thing that eventually stops Trump from being the nominee is some litigation, some legal matter that the courts say disqualify. I mean, I don't see that happening, but I guess there's an outside chance of anything. What do they say? Anything is possible. So, yeah, I mean, I guess if in, in the scenario of anything is possible, a consultant or a candidate going to a rich guy on Wall Street and saying, I need another million because there may be some pending litigation that disqualifies Trump from running. I mean, if you're that, I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're willing to roll the dice to that extreme, it's your money, have at and it. And I think that was kind of Jeff's point in his call yesterday. I mean, from his point of view, which is wishful thinking. He hopes well, I mean, something you know, but, puts but Trump that's, in jail. That's, that's like buying Enron 
while it's while they're taking the E off the building. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, I get it. There's a chance. I mean, there, there's always a chance. Um, optimism springs eternal. You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Winer Live, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260. It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina Winer Live. It's the official the official and the original. Right, Josh? That's right. I'm going to see it's the uh, official. The official. I, mean, I, I nearly said that. <laughs> right? Right. I, I got, it's, it's a curse. I mean, I, my wife and I agree that we're both going dyslexic at the same time. Lizdexia. Yeah, Lizdexia. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're doing it at the, at the same time. She can't find her keys. I can't find this. She doesn't remember this. I don't remember that. Our kids don't love us enough to hang around and help us. So we just kind of muddle through life the best way <laughs> so we so know we're how. talking about combining media and news or news and media. Muse. We could call it muse. Mm. How about that? That's very efficient with the syllables, too. I like that. That's, that's kind of the, the, the Midwesterner making up a word, Josh. <laughs> the Southerner. Let's think about it that. for a minute. But the Midwesterner came up with a. Um, <laughs> you come up with them by accident on the yeah, fly. I, 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 I had to think about that one. The busy head syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the mouth works so fast. The brain works at a more rapid pace. I mean, the brain is not powerful, but but it's agile. I mean, my brain is not powerful at all, but it is very agile. I mean, it's, a, it's able to change its mind. I mean, the brain is able to change its mind. How stupid is that to begin with? Um, I would give the number, but we've only got about 45 seconds before we get out of here. myself. Yeah. Tomorrow is another busy show. I'm sure Friday will be a busy show. I like the way Sam from Cross Hill said, the athletic hour. Right. Now, if our general manager hears that, it, it'll be the athletic hour brought to, we'll you, by, a sponsor. <laughs> brought to you by such and such, um, such and such. We th- certainly thank you. And I mean that sincerely. We'll try to do a more um, thorough analysis of the upcoming primaries. They'll be in South Carolina, what, in a couple of weeks? They're about less than three weeks. We'll have a South Carolina primary. Uh, we need to have a competitive primary because we need to sell some radio ads. Uh, <laughs> politics is always good for radio business. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.